I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. What the fuck? Time, bitch! Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It is great to have you. Today I'm being joined by the wonderful witch Zafdig. How are you, my dear? I'm quite well. How are you? I'm good, too. Yeah. <laughs> Should Part we mention why- my, fashion, my fashion choice for today? Should we I was, mention... I was going to say, that's <laughs> one of the reasons why I'm super excited, is because you look <laughs> smashing. I look smashing in my um, stained... Holy, ripping apart old granny Hot. nightgown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All yeah. you I mean, boys wants to be me. I mean, like stained with coffee, not even like fun stained. <laughs> <laughs> right. Coffee, maybe a little bit of like, you know, um, butter from the toast I had or something, right. you know. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe it sounds exciting. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's awesome. It's good. I've never seen your pajamas before, so. Oh well, yes, there you go. You're That's welcome. <laughs> Thank you, lady. Um, okay, so for everyone out there, it is October 18th, and we are very excited for this episode. This is going to be an insanely packed episode. So understand, I'm going to try to cut down on my normal pre-show chatter. I do want to give you two quick notes, however, uh, because we're combining, or I should say, we're combining two shows this week, uh, the last two episodes of the month, because next week is the Greater Magic Successes and Failures episode. I am really, really looking forward to this. You guys have sent me some really fantastic, and I've discussed with a couple of you, uh, stories about Greater Magic and your experiences, so look forward to that. It's going to be just back-to-back discussions on what you have done as the audience and some of the contributors as well. So look forward to that. It's going to be really fantastic. Again, Halloween week. I can't wait. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And then, of course, that means this is going to be an insanely packed episode. So let's go ahead and do the roster. We're going to start, of course, with Unorthodoxy with Witch Zaftik. How else could we start this? Episode 14. What is this one called? Well, today we're actually going to talk about satanic precursors and really ask, as a scholar, you know, not as a member, was LaVey um, an innovator or not with his Satanism? And, you know, nothing's born out of a vacuum. So I'm going to look at what other scholars say and then what I think. And um, we're going to try to do this as objectively as possible. I've never thought about that saying until you just said it right now. Nothing born out of a vacuum. But that's literally what everything was born out of. If you believe in the Big Bang. (laughs) I never even thought about that before. Interesting. Wow. Hmm. Everything exists 
because it was born out. Okay, anyway, um, so I'm looking forward to that. I, I always yeah. love looking back, and especially when you have different people challenging ideas about Satanism, about where yeah. it came from, where Levee's, uh, you know, personality or influences or whatever. I this is the the part of Satanism that I think is most important is that rat, unlike virtually every other religion out there, we enjoy studying and taking objective views about histories and really considering everything. If we're not challenging our own thoughts and experiences, then we are not really being uh, human beings poised for growth. And uh, that's really, really important to do as an adult and as, in my opinion, a Satanist. So looking forward to that. That's going to be amazing. Uh, I've got an old Nick's peep show. We talk about the situation with Playboy and what's coming in the next issue couple more teases we're gonna do a little something different with heather height that's always fantastic and agent provocateur is giving us episode 26 left wings and right wings off of chickens darren never disappoints and this is nothing short of fantastic and of course i'm talking with militant eroticism aden arden in episode 29 tonight and this is going to be a fantastic episode so stay tuned and we're going to be closing this bad boy yeah as if there wasn't enough content for you people you're never going to get through this episode we're closing this with satanism today so holy shit can you put any more awesome in an episode i don't know that (laughs) i don't know we can the double shot. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's going to be so good. All right. So stick around. It's going to be a long one. Get your drink. Settle in. Let's begin with unorthodoxy. Fascination is a binding which comes from the spirit of the witch through the eyes of him that is bewitched. Entering fascination is a binding. Now the instrument of fascination is the spirit, namely a certain pure, lucid, subtle generated of the pure blood by the heat of the heart. In this segment, um, we are episode 14, we are talking about LaVey and whether or not he was an innovator. Uh, are his ideas, do his ideas stand up as unique in any way in terms of how a scholar would look at uh, the development and growth of Satanism, specifically this term Satanism, religious Satanism, and what does it mean and where did LaVey take his ideas from? Because nothing is born in a vacuum, as we said previously, and uh, we cannot then, you know, take any individual and look at uh, their particular philosophies or writings or ideas and not make links to previous uh, currents of thought that were uh, surrounding that particular person. So uh, what I'm going to do then is look at what the other scholars, um, scholars that look at Satanism as a religion, there's not very many of us, but <laughs> we, are, we are out there, and how, what they say about precursors to Satanism. And I will uh, inject a little bit of my own opinion of whether or not uh, I agree or not. Uh, but for the most part, I am in aligned with what other scholars say. Because the short answer, if we condense it, is, okay, LeVay had um, you know, some interesting ideas. He certainly did some new things with how he codified uh, Satanism. But we can look back and say it's not as if these ideas were entirely new. Different people were thinking about the devil in sympathetic terms uh, for centuries before that, but uh, LeVay doesn't deny that. So whether or not uh, Satanism, as according to the Church of Satan and LeVay, is a new uh, innovation, um, I would say yes, but let me state my case first. 
let's begin with um, sort of the high to late medieval uh, period, because at this point, satanic rhetoric is extremely strong, and it mostly comes from the church. Uh, theologians are obsessed with diabolatry. They are attempting to define the devil, his purpose, his looks, his powers, how he seduces people, women and men, um, his demons, what power they have, how the demons can corrupt and somehow uh, lead you to the evil path. Uh, but also there was this popular reaction to this constant theological um, heaviness of how they were presenting the devil. He's everywhere. He can corrupt you at any moment. Everybody has to be watch out. Everybody has to be extremely vigilant. And this produces a lot of um, anxiety. We can call it that term nowadays. And so the reaction, the popular folkloric reaction to this heavy-handed dialogue about Satan is to then sort of reinterpret him a little bit as um, a common person that, uh, or at least commonly affiliated, that um, he could be, if you were clever, you could trick the devil. That uh, if you really knew what you're doing and you did it properly, you could summon a demon or if the demon, um, you know, presented themselves to you, that you could somehow trick them into do your bidding. So lots of stories and mythologies and, uh, you know, very just popular religion, stories of people, you know, that telling each other. Uh, we emerge as this idea of demons can be tricked if you're clever enough. Um, you can always outsmart the devil kind of thing. And you still find stories like that today. Uh even though this type of popular rhetoric sort of emerges as a response to the heavy-handed theological discourse of Satan is evil and can corrupt you at any time, the notion of summoning a demon to do your bidding is actually extremely old and predates uh, Christianity. Uh, there are predates Judaism even. The idea that somehow there are little entities, mischievous or not, um, not quite good or evil the way we would think of those terms, because that those absolutist terms come a bit later in terms of Western history. The idea of some sort of entity or spirit or fairy, depending on which culture, that you could summon or a skilled person can summon to somehow do your bidding, um, is as old as most human cultures. So in the medieval period, when this happens in Europe, um, they're sort of corresponding with two discourses. Here's the theological top-down thing saying Satan is evil all the time, and then the folkloric response to sort of depict Satan in, uh, in terms of a, a comic fool, in a way, uh, because it sort of relieves that social pressure. So, uh, But one of the interesting things about what the, th the church does, this, these the theological discourse, is, is it emphasizes that Satan rules here on earth. Um, he's, he's the master of the material world. God, by contrast, was unreachable, just like a king or a president, um, to the peasants. It's, it's, it's sort of an abstract, ephemeral. God isn't really alive here. <laughs> uh, so this idea that, that Satan is the ruler of the material world then puts him everywhere. So by striving to keep people within the fold of the church using this satanic rhetoric, the church simultaneously makes him more accessible and tangible. They created a monster, in a sense. <laughs> <laughs> because Satan is everywhere, therefore, you have the occasional case where someone in a court document claims to be in league with the devil. The court documents, though, cannot necessarily be taken as some sort of a witnessing for Satanism, as we would call it. Uh, some scholars sort of have a, um, let's say they're a little bit on the fence on this. So does, do these court documents indicate, because we have uh, several of them, indicate, uh, and so under confession, someone will say, yes, absolutely, I'm in league with the devil. 
um, I screwed him in the woods last night and he made me kill my husband or I spoiled my neighbor's um, cows and their milk doesn't produce anything, only produces sour milk. Uh, most scholars will say, well, this was under duress or, you know, the confessions in this way may be also a blatant, uh, even if they weren't necessarily under duress, maybe it's a, it's a way to blatantly defy the church. Like, if you're going to tell me all the things that I'm doing are horrible and wrong, then screw you. Yes, uh, I'm in league with the devil. So yeah. there's sort of a, yeah, a defiance Sorry. notion of it. But does that indicate that there was some secret uh, lineage of people uh, con that considered the devil as uh, the ultimate concern, uh, the, their religious focus, as we might call that today? Um, I'm of the opinion that we don't really have any evidence for that apart from court documents of people who uh, in medieval courts especially <laughs> once the accusation happens uh, you are more than likely to be considered guilty I mean the accusation in and of itself presents this sort of social drama you know you only, you rarely accuse someone who um, doesn't already have issues in the community and um, you're accusing someone who's already making waves. And by the time the, the, the court happens, like the actual trial, I mean, this person has been condemned. You know, it doesn't happen to the nice person that everybody likes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unless the fact that the person that everybody likes was suspicious because everybody liked them. <laughs> you see, so there's always these levels of social dramas being enacted in these courts. Let's move a little bit, uh, you know, so late medieval right into the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment period is really where we see rhetoric about Satan that is recognizable to us today. So um, Christian thought, in a sense, had banished Satan to hell. But then certain individuals, artists, writers, use this rhetoric of Satan to express certain ideals. They resurrect him, so to speak, to champion liberty, sexual freedom, where he was a, Satan becomes a free-thinking philosopher, a poet-rebel. Um, they take Satan's mythology as a rebellious fallen angel and then reinterpret him as their anti-hero. So mo this mostly happens in uh, works of fiction. I'll just give you two examples. In Byron's story, Cain, Lucid Lucifer declares his brotherhood with those that defy God, who he calls an omnipotent tyrant. In George Sand's Consuelo, Satan introduces himself as, I am not the demon, I am the archangel of legitimate revolt and the patron of great struggles. So this idea of rebellion is extremely strong, of uh, liberty, of sex without morality, of this idea of defying the status quo. So quite a bit of this, these romantic um, uh, works of fic fiction in this enlightenment period they take Satan and um, he functions within these works as a literary device to present a thinly veiled metaphor for humanity on its way to emancipation, an emancipation from what these Enlightenment thinkers deem to be oppressive Christian orthodoxies. So he's used as a character um, by different names, but often recognizable type of names, <laughs> uh, to represent these ideals of where they saw society going as a critique of the old ways, of the, the hold that Christianity was still trying to hold on major um, Western thought. Although it is, you cannot consider that these authors considered themselves to uh, be Satanists, even if you say, well, here's a recognizable way that Satan is depicted, but it is a portrayal. He's not necessarily a real entity. And some of these authors may have considered themselves Christian. They just were um, 
their particular Christianity because Christianity itself was changing during the Enlightenment period. They were saying, well, the old ways are no longer. We need to have um, a more uh, liberal, the way we might describe that today, type of Christianity. We need to be a bit freer with these ideas. We need to, to champion free thought. So Christian or not, some of these types, this rhetoric around Satan was beginning to come amplified because and people are expressing sympathy for this character who defied God and champion ideals that they believed in. Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, bring, let's come down to a particular guy who I, I, um, uh, he's, a, he's an artist. Um, he's a Polish guy. His name is Stanislav Przybyszewski. Now, I apologize in advance for likely <laughs> butchering that name. You said it I'm wrong! Gonna, yeah, I'm going to call him Przybyszewski because I practiced it. Um, but I could be, it could be horribly wrong. You can uh, call Adam and leave a voicemail if, with the proper pronunciation <laughs> if you're Polish and you know it. So he lived from 1868 to 1927. And this Przybyszewski is often um, posited as, here's an example of someone who was a Satanist before LeVay. This is Satanism and um, LeVay was not an innovator uh, because Przybyszewski... Uh, had had presented a, a, a religious Satanism before that, so I'm not sure. Let's let's see what the scholars have to say. I'm referencing particularly uh, Pair Faxnald. I will put all these references um, uh, on my blog. So uh, Faxnald is um, like me, one of the few scholars who is actually looking at religious Satanism, and he writes an essay about Przybyszewski's work and asks this kind of question. All right, you know, is he a Satanist? Is he not? Or uh, Faxnell's not as concerned about that, but he's at least talking about how Przybyszewski thought of Satan and framed him. Przybyszewski is an artist, a bohemian, and a decadent. <laughs> and um, he, in a lot of essays and works of fiction and plays, he uh, presents a Satan that is the ultimate free thinker and actually an anarchist. Um, uh, within Poland at the time, uh, some of these ideas are brewing, right? These are extremely, uh, the, the communist anarchist, uh, these are becoming not just familiar, but they're in the ethos at the time, the social ethos. So Przybyszewski considered Christianity a religion of the stupid masses, uh, proposed, and he proposed a, a proud singing, uh, proud sinning in general in the name of Satan, which uh, translated from the, the, the Polish, he called Satan instinct, Satan nature, Satan curiosity, and Satan passion. So Satan to this guy was the father of life, um, reproduction, progression, and the eternal return. Uh, it is difficult to say just how far Przybyszewski's thoughts on this matter uh, went. We see he did write a lot, and when we sort of extract where he mentions Satan and talks about Satan, uh, he, he seems to sort of declare himself as a Satanist in a sense, because he is so strongly anti-Christian and, and strongly anti, uh, um, anti-stupidity is what he calls it, this sort of mass notion of... of so it's an extremely rebellious, anarchistic um, type of, of Satanism. None of the people um, that I previously mentioned, the authors or the theologians, um, <clears throat> would have, or even those that express sympathy for the devil, would have considered themselves Satanists, Satanists like use that term. When the term Satanist is used previously, it's usually as an accusation, or sometimes in these court documents, it's kind of vague, you know, like, what do they mean by um, 
Satanism. They certainly call themselves, uh, they certainly uh, have an equally would use terms like sorcerer and witchcraft to describe all sorts of things that they were trying to denounce. And the Enlightenment authors, the works of fiction, um, would not have used that term. We have no evidence of it. But Prince Bozuski interprets and reflects the surrounding ideas of Satan as the rebel hero, and he certainly incorporates them into his uh, writings. He is mostly an ideologue of inversion. He takes negative figures or epithets, Satan, evil, decadence, and reinterprets them as something positive. And these ideas are reflected in all of his writings. He publicly declares himself in league with Satan, uh, especially as he emphasizes his strong and overt disdain for Christianity. So while others were interested in his ideas, he did not formally declare himself as a, a leader of a religion. And we don't have any evidence of that he attracted followers. Uh, there may be other artists that visited him um, that, were, that were interested in some of the ideas that he developed. And Faxnell makes the case that some of these other artists um, uh, then incorporated those ideas into their own art. Uh, but again, an artistic depiction isn't necessarily the same thing as organized religion. Uh, so some scholars also claim that his ideas were nothing more than a private mythology with no evidence of any organized religion in its own right at all. Uh, because we don't have very much evidence, I'm willing to simply say, well, here's a guy, a guy among many. There's quite a few of this that are Blavatsky, for one, um, presented very sympathetic terms in terms of, uh, of thinking about the devil. And she even named her um, theosophical uh, journal Lucifer because she was incorporating the same idea. Um, let's explore esoteric ideas, esoteric ideas that have been suppressed and denounced, and let's, um, let's explore these ideas in the name of Lucifer, because he re represents enlightenment, the, the light bringer. So they're always reincorpor reincorporating and reinterpreting these mythology. So um, what we can say then is that in the current time right now, there are uh, certain non-Church of Satan Satanists that look at Presbyzewski and say, well, here's evidence of a precursor, and he has a resurgence of interest now. There's no unbroken lineage, but nowadays some people are reading his works and then incorporating it into their particular uh, world, satanic worldview. Not the COS version of <laughs> Satanism, but we can say that there are, whether or not this has a lasting legacy or not, um, as a scholar, well, we never really know. Um, it, it would depend on a lot of things. Um, uh, the Church of Satan itself, if you look at it objectively, certainly has this sort of lasting legacy because it is organized. So LeVay is uh, an innovator in the fact that once he organizes the religion and declares it in terms of modern recognizable terms, I'm the leader of this church, this is the book, uh, he presents Satanism in ways that the surrounding culture can recognize as religion, quote unquote. We have a text, we have a leader, there was an official founding. So these elements then indicate that, well, he's doing something um, at least that the surrounding culture says is new. His codification of Satanism is new. The idea of this is what it represents in clear, unambiguous terms. That certainly had not been done before by any of the authors because most of the other people who are thinking about it are either thinking of it symbolically or thinking about it in terms of this reactionary um, uh, way to, to voice critique. So, there, so he's a Satan becomes a vehicle. Whether he's a real entity to them or not, I think is still slightly 
ambiguous. <laughs> but he certainly does represent this vehicle for, for, critique, for critique, the original rebel hero. Um, I just want to close out a note with, in terms of uh, who, what Carl Abrahamson says about um, LeVay. So let's forget about all this Satanism rhetoric and let's think about what LeVay that was ahead of what Carl Abrahamson thinks is a true innovation. And Abrahamson says, so yes, he's doing all these things. He's repackaging this particular way. He codifies the religion. But what Abrahamson is interested in, in this uh, one article that I will also put a link to, and he says, what's often dismissed, especially since Satanism tends to present itself as an extremely secular, um, more or less atheistic type of worldview, what's often dismissed with LeVay is his magical innovations, concepts like erotic crystallization inertia and total environments. These things that um, are very much new and are magically, esoterically um, new things for other magicians to then um, be in dialogue with, to use, um, to reincorporate. So Abrahamson, when he talks about LeVay, says, let's not forget this esoteric element. There are all these other elements, but the, the esoteric magical notions of what LeVay does is um, very much new and represents a significant contribution to magical discourse um, and using Satan. But it's, a, it's the magical discourse where LeVay has the true uh, innovation. That is fantastic. Oh, my gosh. Um, it, uh, I, I want to I jump on a couple of those ideas that you were uh, sharing. I, I, I'm going to ask you about um, why people always want to find a precursor to LeVay. Um, why is it important to hunt down a sort of origin? But before that... When I when I think of Satanism, and of course I'm biased, I'm a Satanist. When I think of Satanism, I don't think of a reaction to Christianity. I think of a celebration of carnal existence in life. So all of the precursors that you had mentioned were reactionary. They were mm -hmm. um, either directly created by the church or they were a reaction to the church's stupidity uh, through the individual's perception. So none of it was what we would consider satanic as we understand it as codified by Anton LaVey. So whenever mm. anyone makes that, that uh, presumption that, and, and here's the other thing, LaVey never hid the fact that he took from history. No, not at ever. all. Like, it, no. it's not like it's a yeah. secret where he got his, some, some of his ideas. I mean, he straight up said them. So yeah. <laughs> I always find that interesting. So if, so if I can ask you really quick, where do you think it comes from that desire to hunt down an origin? Well, this, this comes from um, essentially the struggle for legitimacy among satanic groups. So individuals and groups who identify as satanic, that um, just for the listeners who don't know, the Church of Satan says there are no other kinds of Satanists. There are Satanists and there are nuts. That's LaVey's quote. So any other kind it doesn't actually exist. So they don't don't acknowledge it. Uh, me as a scholar, if I'm approaching it as a scholar, and within this segment, I mostly try to do that, mm. although I'm on the fence for some discussions, clearly. Uh, but so as a scholar, um, what, what is really happening when, me, when people um, sometimes make great 
like bend the facts, I think, bend the evidence a little bit, um, is because they're trying to say, to say, they're trying to uh, jeopardize the what they see as the Church of Satan's strong arm tactics. The Church of Satan is very clear. They have never shied away from denouncing uh, other groups and other one, people who try to claim that there were legitimate uh, precursors. And if I was the leader of the COS, I would probably do the same thing. I mean, that would be a that would be a good tactic, <laughs> right? But when I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, all right, uh, the attempt to try to find uh, these satanic precursors the way that we would define it or the way that, you know, the way they define it is mainly because the outside world doesn't recognize between groups, right? Mm -hmm. So they tend to look at uh, witchcraft and Satanism or Wicca, neo-paganism, theistic Satanism or otherwise um, as sort of all the same kind of thing and usually react to it with uh, fear and trepidation Um, or sometimes even those that wouldn't necessarily take on you know, react to it with fear would just consider it all a joke and none of them legitimate religions. So it's the rhetoric of, uh, is a legitimating tactic. Like, let's uh, try to find for one, if you can find historical precedent, then you can then sort of undermine what the COS claims. So that's one of the reasons that they would do that. Um, uh, Another reason is to also esoterically sort of think of themselves as inheriting a unbroken line of black magicians and their esoteric work. Uh, I am less concerned about that as the scholar. And I think if I had to even give advice to these other other groups, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, just in terms of what works historically, is that the, the anti-each other like uh, rhetoric, when that becomes the drama, when the drama becomes louder than what you're actually doing, then scholars tend to dismiss it. So if they actually begin to develop their own ideas, and if they use the different name, and I say that just as the scholar, it might go easier for them. <laughs> like, so there are certain groups that say, okay, I, I, I'm a, I thought I was a Satanist or a spiritual Satanist, but I'm going to use some other word. I'm going to use uh, Luciferianism or something, or dark pagan, because so not to confuse. And then they, that sort of frees them up from constantly then being lumped in with the Church of Satan or confused mm-hmm. with the Church of Satan. And then they can begin to develop some of their own ideas. I don't think it's terribly important to actually have an unbroken line of black magicians. Like mm-hmm. For some people, it certainly is. Uh, but it's, it's one of those things that within religious discourse in the, in the, in the contemporary period, there's certainly many neo-pagans that would say, no, there's no unbroken line of women practicing these secret magical rituals. That would be great, but it is part of our mythology, so I'm going to use it in the, the ritual. So there's some neo-pagans that absolutely say, there's no unbroken line, uh, but so what? I'm going to use it because it's important symbolically for them. Hmm. So, so you do see some of those um, types of ideas happening within non-COS groups. And I say that knowing that even this particular discussion that I'm having here, um, presenting it in a way that I would feel comfortable uh, as a scholar, is going to anger some listeners. I get that. (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) But as the scholar, I wouldn't shy away from that. If you ask me my personal opinion, it would differ um, a little bit. But I'm I'm trying in this segment for the most part to say, well, if I was going to write an article about it, uh, how would I talk about it? How would I frame these ideas? So I think it's if the wider culture at large understood the differences, there may not be as much of a need 
to then constantly try to prove, quote unquote, historical precedent, because there wouldn't be confusion. But it's because of the large, the wider population, the popular idea have no, make no distinction between groups that these accusations and claims and counterclaims become important. That was really interesting when you mentioned um, that scholars will dismiss those who create a bunch of drama that ultimately becomes louder than their message of the religion itself uh, for the validity of that religion. Do you think that the um, Church of State and stance of, of dismissing, like openly dismissing these sort of fringe pseudo groups, um, does that devalue the CUS in the public oh eyes. oh interesting uh no I don't think it no not necessarily um I think okay a good scholar should dismiss the drama and not and maybe dismiss was the wrong word but they should at least try to tune it down the drama indicates something else right the drama indicates struggles for legitimacy and authority authoritative voice in the wider population right the church of satan wants to be able to define what satanism is they've started it they sort of said well we're not going to let all this volume of rhetoric um, muddy our message. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I think, again, I think if I was the leader, I think that they, they've been very clear about that. And that's actually to stay on message is actually probably a good tactic. Um, I'm more concerned when I think about these ideas of this volume that's created. Uh, certainly some scholars do focus on it and I find it bad scholarship. Like, okay, yes, they are all yelling accusations at each other, but who's developing ideas that are interesting? And if most of someone's website that I go to, like someone will send me a link, oh, do you have you heard about this satanic group? And I'll go. And if 90% of their website is about anti-Church of Satan and anti-Levee, <laughs> then I don't see that they've developed their own ideas and it's less interesting to me. Yeah. If I get sent to a website that, uh, that has said, okay, LeVay did some interesting things. Here's where we're taking it. And then that becomes a little bit more interesting to me of what they're doing. There are not very many of those at all, actually, for most of these other groups. Um, so then then I, I don't think it necessarily makes the Church of Satan um, look bad uh, because as long as they stay clear in the, the type of rhetoric there, you know, as long as they don't delve into like every week making a post about other groups, yeah. then, then then that would be essentially the same thing. Uh, but the Church of Satan, because of their volume and size, um, has members developing ideas and doing different projects all the time. I'm not concerned <laughs> about their lasting legacy. Here it is. I see it all the time. Right. Yeah. So I'm not. Um, uh, I think that the the drama is something that's unavoidable uh, in, in terms of, you know, whether you're a scholar or not. The scholar's job, though, to me is to be able to uh, sift through that noise and say, who is actually developing something interesting and curious? You know, the, the drama means something. And you can talk about the drama. But if the only thing you do is browse the Internet as a scholar... If the only thing you do is browse the internet and read blogs um, that uh, engage in this kind of drama of name calling, you are a bad scholar. <laughs> you are a lazy <laughs> scholar. And every now and then I have come across that. It can mean something, to, but it, you can talk about it, but you have to be able to then not think this is all there is 
because internet drama and name calling is not the same thing as doing research on the ground with people who are actually behaving and living according to the ideas that they spew online. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that's an amazing uh, episode with Zavtik. Uh, All right. I, I wanted to close kind of with an appreciation for um, Abrahamson's uh, idea. I don't even know if mm-hmm. the name right. Because I never... I mean, it's in your face. Half the standard Bible is about magic. Um, yeah. If you read any of his collections, uh, Anton LaVey's collections of essays, by far, you know, maybe more than half of them are about more esoteric concepts. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's observation, it's uh, practical expression, but then, you know, you run across these ideas like how to become a werewolf, <laughs> ECI, <Yes. laughs> you know? You, and yeah. Again, just like he said, I'm not entirely sure he gets credit for that stuff, which no. is original and it is yeah. groundbreaking type stuff when when you're coming from a position of of a carnal religion. I mean that those two married together yeah. is really original. It's, and it's interesting that within esoteric circles, because the COS has positioned itself as this sort of secular um, religion, which makes sense for them to do for so many reasons, um, but. Um, the rhetoric, again, the drama, the noise, has tended to then um, make people sort of lump LaVey in as sort of a, a boring a boring atheist, and, <laughs> which, I, it, which is a shame. Well, it's their loss. But in terms yeah. of, yes, yeah, some of these ideas, they're absolutely worth exploring esoterically. Um, there's uh, quite a lot of meat there of really interesting things. I'm obsessed with ECI and total environment. It's like <laughs> yeah. my new... My, my my new focus for my entire thesis so like i i think oh, wow. it's uh, um uh, i think it's an, yeah an, uh, i agree with Abrahamson the idea that it's overlooked and undervalued and um but you know um satanist even among satanists even among church of satan members yeah. um i i think that some of levee's later works are a little bit ignored and there needs to be like the stuff he did in the seventies about like uh, TEs and ECIs um, uh, needs to sort of be rejuvenated a little bit among some of the uh, younger Satanists who haven't quite explored those essays yet in a in a serious way. They may have read them, but haven't really thought about the idea of magical innovation. Yeah, it's study not worship, man. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, where can the good folks listening find you online? Where can they find that blog you were speaking to? The blog is called Unorthodoxy Blog at WordPress.com. You can find me on Facebook, Unorthodoxy with Witch Zaftig on Facebook. You can email me directly at ZaftigWorks, all one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. Well, that was, again, absolutely fantastic. Every episode you bring out is is just stellar. Thank you so much. You flatter me, sir. Indeed. Indeed. Let's do a little old Nick's peep show and continue on. Welcome to another Old Nick's Peep Show, the only segment that delivers beautiful women, masculine men, and intriguing information on all things Old Nick. Joining us as always is the very first Old Nick chick, which Marilyn Mansfield, and our handsome man managing editor, Warloth Zoth Amog. How are both of you today? We are good, thank you. Doing great as always, Adam. How are you? Very good. I love 
chatting with the both of you. And we have a lot to talk about. It's Halloween. Uh, the new issue is going to be out relatively soon. Uh, but before we get into that... If anyone's been paying attention to the news, some interesting news has come out of Playboy. So I was wondering, what would Old Nick's magazine take B on that? Uh, what do you guys think about uh, Playboy getting rid of nudes in their magazine? I, I think it's sad, personally. I think it's sad. I think it's um, just another thing that, you know, due to modern technology, the internet, it's changing the world. And I just think it's another thing to go. It's kind of sad. I think it's sad. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think they just finally realized they can't compete with Old Nick magazines. So <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> it is weird because Playboy is an institution. It is the first gentleman's magazine that, I mean, virtually our society ever really paid attention to on a on a massive scale. I mean, as a young man, it was the first, well, it was the only gentleman's magazine that I ever subscribed to growing up. It was like the gentleman's magazine. You thought of, of beautiful pinups, you thought of Playboy. Um, how does, does this decision uh, reflect any thoughts in Old Nick Magazine? Uh, do you, from, from your perspective, do they do the right thing? I mean... For me, for my opinion is, you know, I, I think they should keep doing what they're doing. I mean, I don't know, you know, I don't work for Playboy or anything, so I don't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe the sales were down. I don't I don't know personally. I think that their pictures in the magazines were I I mean, a lot of them to me aren't even like nudes though. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. they're just like they're more like art um photographs, you know, because they're so retouched and everything and I mean, um, I just I, – I don't see the purpose of not doing the nudes anymore. I, I've always liked Playboy, you know. Um, I have I have a collection of them with Anna Nicole and stuff like that and them. Yeah. Um, collector's pieces, you know. Um, I mean they, they always had beautiful photographs. I don't know why – I just feel bad. I feel sad that like, you know, that's uh, – I mean, it's not going to affect my life anyway, but <laughs> yeah. I just think that it's such an iconic thing, you know, and it's it's no more. I don't know. I just I don't get it. But, mm. you know, that's well, my it, opinion. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely a reflection of the times. You know, I think I read a st statistic somewhere where they were saying that um, Playboy used to have like five point six million copies sold. And now they're down to like eight hundred thousand or something like that. So that's a substantial drop yeah. in 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 the magazine being purchased, you know, and then it's a reflection of the technological age that we're in, that everything is available at the click of a mouse and gratification is instant and people can get all kinds of smut on the Internet. So there's no need for a publication like Playboy to be, you know, um, putting out erotic photography anymore it's just kind of sad like you know what you know both of you were mentioning is that it's it's a very iconic kind of thing you know it's it's something that you know the playmate of the year it's like this big deal you know to a lot of you know aspiring models and stuff and to yeah guess no longer have that i mean i think from what i read from several articles they are going to still do you know erotic photography but it's just not going to be nudes 
which I think makes sense. They, you know, there's such a, a large name out there that if they were to bring back the sort of, you know, retro 50s pinup style or, you know, the, the burlesque type of aspect where you get to see just enough, mm-hmm. I think that would be actually, you know, classier in their, in their Playboy aesthetic than to try to compete with, you know, magazines like Penthouse and Hustler and Old Nick, you know, that, you know, we, we're, we're showing them everything that you want to see. So it, it could work or it could not work. I don't know. But either which way, I think Hef has more than enough money. I don't really think he cares. <laughs> I mean, I, I, th- I think that, yeah, I, I don't think Hef needs to do, uh, you know, uh, the magazines anymore if he chose to. I just think that, like, I think a lot of in the recent years and stuff like that, the main, uh, a lot of people I know I something that I liked about Playboy was they would take a very well-known celebrity and show them nude. Like it was like an exclusive thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And though I think that a lot of people, like I remember like every time a celebrity was in Playboy, it was like a huge deal, you know? Yeah. Um, especially if they were like, you know, not a, just an act, an actress or not just, you know, but <laughs> not into erotic type of modeling or something like that. And then they would just be nude or whatever. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I just, I just think that it's sad that you know people don't, people rather go on the internet and see like anything rather than look at a tastefully done, you know, uh, magazine with, you know, um, artsy nudes. I think, mm-hmm. I think that's sad, but that's just how the world is. I mean, <laughs> the the responses I read or or their justification that I read online was largely that they were enabled to have a social media presence because of the nature of, you know, just nude photos. And I mean, old Nick is doing it. Every other uh, magazine is doing it. And I've never personally thought of, you know, I need to get my nude fix. Let's go to Playboy. Like that's, it's never been that for me. It's always been a much more mature stance on lifestyle and uh, appreciation of the Playboy aesthetic. Like you were mentioning really early on, uh, just a minute ago, Zoth, that they are their own brand of of pinup and uh, female. And, you know, you were saying earlier that they hardly even are seen as nudes at all it's it's like art photos so so it's really interesting the justification they used because it didn't match what i've always thought of when i thought of of uh, what they were it was yeah. weird and w- let me let me turn it a little bit there uh, and and put it on you guys because they were saying that it was challenging having a social media presence because of the subject matter, and yet old Nick is doing it and doing brilliantly at it. So what do you think that you guys are doing right that they're not? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know why they would have a conflict with social media because, I mean, I follow Playboy like on Instagram and they just show like um, girls with dongs on and stuff. I mean – doesn't seem like they're having a problem but i mean again i don't work for the company so i don't know but i'm just saying um i don't know zoth what do you think i mean uh, well i i i feel you know like what what we do at old nick magazine is that we find ways around the guidelines you know there's very you can very easily censor a nude picture for social media and you know sort of tease the audience as to what they're going to see in an upcoming issue they, you don't have to necessarily show everything 
to arouse interest. And, and I don't understand why, you know, Playboy would find that difficult to do. And in, in a world where you understand the terms and conditions of, you know, of social media site, it's very easy to just get around that and, and still put out, you know, photography that, that lures, you know, viewers in to, to your publication. I, I don't understand. I mean, I, I think that's kind of a cop out. I think they're just kind of just, you know, trying to do something different and they're using that excuse as you know their their justification especially in a day in this day and age where like you know you turn on the television and there's some girl like doing like getting a, a brazilian wax that's like everyday tv you know or, <laughs> yeah. or or their anus bleached or whatever the hell <laughs> i mean i see things on reality tv i'm just like i can't i would not be caught dead doing this on tv like i don't yeah. get it like anything goes today anything yeah. goes so i mean it's just sad that you know playboy is not even considered pornography anymore mm. it's like just you know it's so like it's like not even like softcore pornography it's just like you know I don't know. I mean, it's uh, today. It's everything museum, is ju- It's museum gallery nudes. That's what it really is. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's just. Um, I seen more raunchy stuff on Facebook, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Twitter's like no holds bars. Twitter so is yeah. Twitter is everything. I mean, so I don't. I don't know. It's sad though. It's I. Interesting. You know, I always say I always wanted to meet half. I always, you know. I always thought he looked seemed like a pretty cool guy, and uh, I think if Playboy is going to get rid of the nudes, they should do a uh, plus size issue, and I will uh, volunteer. Hell yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that'd be awesome. <laughs> well, um, go out with a bang. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. Um, it, it's it's nice that uh, those uh, like us, Satanists, who you know, we we do not forget the uh, strengths and the draws of of past orthodoxy. Is we we have a, a sense of aesthetic that is our own, and and typically we like to connect with um, eras bygone. Uh, so for those of us who did enjoy old, um, I'm sorry, I was going to say old Nick, uh, um, <laughs> Playboy uh, in its prime. There's no reason why we can't continue to do so because those publications are still there. Uh, Marilyn, you were mentioning you still have some collectibles of uh, Anna Nicole Smith um, issues. So, you know, we can still enjoy it for what it was and celebrate it for what it was. uh, But it it is interesting because old Nick's in the industry, Playboy's in the industry. um, They're not entirely dissimilar. Do you think that or could you imagine in the future old Nick doing anything like this? No. No. <laughs> I was just going to say I'm that. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, no, no. We don't, you no. know, the thing is about old Nick is that we follow the rules, you know, when mm-hmm. it comes to social media and that kind of stuff. But we're not going to, um, we're not going to change what the magazine is for anybody. If you don't like it, go look at some other magazine then. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? This is old Nick. We stand our ground, you know, and, um, that's that's how we you know stay where we are because we don't back down for nothing you know and um i think that's good in a way you know so yeah and you know as you know we have to be socially aware of what's happening you know with with people's tastes and i think um you know just just the 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 idea that people are you know getting gratification from you know 
uh, having their pornography um, a mouse click away is something that you have to keep up with. You can't just like, yeah. you know, call it quits and be like, well, forget it. The Internet killed the magazine. It's like, no, make make the magazine geared more towards the Internet then, you know, like mm-hmm. keep up with the times and figure out, you know, the, the next way to create the next, you know, big and, thing. Just, and that's you know, what we up. did a couple of years ago. We went we, we do the uh, the videos online and, and we have mm-hmm. the the other version online that is more um uh more hardcore yeah more yeah. hardcore because we we did the opposite thing instead of saying you know what let's throw in the towel because of the internet we just went with the flow you know that's what you have to do so skin mags is the digital download version right. that, ha- that offers you know streaming video and you know it's even more hardcore than the than the uh mag clouds publication and it's you know right. we're just we're keeping up and once we figure out how to do holographic issues and you know <laughs> smell a vision and all kinds of stuff <laughs> we're gonna keep up and keep doing it you know you'll open yeah. up a magazine and a 3d hologram will be there and you'll be able to smell her and feel her and forget it you know just but you know going. what? Maybe maybe it's better off if Playboy just you know steps out and stays how they were and just gets out now. You know, I couldn't imagine open up a Playboy and seeing you know really raunchy stuff. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, That's it would just ruin me. the brand. For sure. It would be weird, you know. So maybe it's better off they just say, "Hey, you know, we're we're going out like this, and that's it." You know, and yeah. uh, I mean, I don't, you know, well, seems like a cop out to me. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't they're, understand they're, it. I don't get it. Oh. Old yeah, Magazine has a, has a big online audience, and they don't need Playboy. It's it's nice to hear that that you guys are going to continue down the path that you have of of innovation and meeting your audience uh, on the on the in the form that they are wanting and expecting. Um, this new issue, again, we mentioned it very at the top of this discussion, is coming out very soon. Uh, it is called Old Nick's Peep Show. Can we get a little uh, little peep of uh, what to expect in this new issue before we close down the conversation? Um, sure. You know, the new issue, I think we mentioned last time, Marilyn does a great interview with Mia Tyler. Oh, yeah, this is really, really exciting. And we're going to have the return of uh, Julie Simone, the fetish model. Also, um, we're going to have Lily Lane, the adult star in it. Um, Our very own Scarlet Black is going to return with her Seven Deadly Sins um, uh, article. This time she's focusing on wrath. We have a surprise article from Kevin Slaughter, a great article by Magus Gilmore, a week's worth of essential Halloween movies. So that should be really cool. <laughs> yeah, I know we've got all our pretty stuff. girls, more pretty girls, more articles, music reviews, everything that you've come to expect from Old Nick magazine. And nudes. Uh, yeah. Nudes. That's <laughs> they are still there. <laughs> rated R and rated triple X. Your choice. Yeah. All right. Well man. now now when people say I read Playboy for the articles, they really are. Yeah, it's true now. <laughs> <laughs> it's finally true. No one's gonna understand the joke anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for joining me. This is fantastic. I love getting Old Nick's perspective on the Playboy situation, and I always love hearing what's coming in the next issue. This is going to be a fantastic one. Where can the good folks online find a little more Old Nick? As always, um, check out oldnickmagazine.com. There you'll find links to our social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Instagram, Allo. Um, geez, I'm sure I'm missing a couple. Um, check out our store. 
Um, check out Marilyn's Twitter at Old Nick Chick. And anyone interested in advertising or submissions to the magazine can write to info at oldnickmagazine.com. Yeah, there's still a little a little bit of time to get an ad in there for the Halloween issue, which is going to be really, really awesome. So if you want to get it in, do it now. Hell yeah. No time like the present. Well, thank you both so much for joining me. It's always fantastic to talk with you. Always a great time, Adam. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you very much. Looking forward to the next time we can speak again. Yeah, yeah. Well, until then, hail Satan. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Island Bob Mon speaking on behalf of I Satan this boy. Listen, you are so ugly, man. Put on this sigil of Baphomet. Look at you, no. You're so sexy now, man. Here, give it back. That one is mine, boy. I say give it back, or am I gonna cut you, no, boy? You want your own, then go to iSatanist.com and get your own, man. They got everything you need. They got sterling silver pendants, rings, and medallions, too. They got an LED wall plaque for your man that you can customize for your sexy self. Whatever you need, they got that boy. Hear me now, iSatanist.com. And say it with me now, iSatanist.com. The highest embodiment of satanic products, man. Go there now and get sexy. Welcome to this week's edition of Something Different with Heather Height on Nine Cents. This week, I will be telling my son about comedians having regular day jobs and issues therein. Um, Adam asked me. He actually suggested a few uh, topics, and this was one of them. And so I started by going to uh, Psychology Today. It was like a series of articles written by uh, Dr. Gil Greengross, where he... Uh, interviewed and tested comedians to see how they tested against college students or, you know, quote-unquote regular people, I guess. That's what he had access to as far as regular people go, as college students. I don't know why. And uh, <laughs> he did the uh, Winchler uh, IQ test on them. Eh, it's just the name of a test, and I just wanted to sound smart. Okay. Winchler, Winchler IQ test. Sounds German. Germans like to study how smart people are and, you know, how superior they might be. He also did uh, personality tests on them. He found that most comedians were, of course, you know, above average intelligence-wise, and that they were uh, disagreeable introverts who were mildly neurotic but open-minded. 
I think I could. I'm, I don't know. I'm not really disagreeable. I mean, sometimes I'm disagreeable. <laughs> Maybe if you have to watch TV with me, I can be a little bit yeah. disagreeable. <laughs> what the hell is he doing that for? Like lots of that goes on when I'm watching TV. <laughs> this would never happen. That's completely wrong. <laughs> I think that I, I think I get along with people in general. But what does all this have to do with comedians and issues with having day jobs? I know that me personally and a few comics that I have had the opportunity to work with outside of working in comedy, we all seem to have a a tad bit of oppositional defiant tendencies. We don't work well with authority. But a lot of comedians also like oddly enough kind of respect hierarchies in a way it's it's a strange thing like like i would i would be very unlikely to disrespect a police officer because he has an established authority he's serve and protect and this is what you're doing if it's just a police officer he's not being a douchebag he's being he's doing his job then i'm going to respect the dude somebody who i don't respect who's put in a managerial position over me <laughs> i might have a problem with and the, now well, there's some people that could just like accept how things are and 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 function in society in that way, and they're and that makes them really good at um, you know acclimating to situations like that, you know, where they they're defiant behind the scenes, whereas a lot of comics, including myself, tend to be just right up defiant, which is not um, always conducive to keeping jobs. <laughs> I've never been fired. From jobs, I usually leave them. I can't say I've never been fired. I've been let go. <laughs> I've been laid off, but never like fired. Like you fucked up, and now you're fired. Like or I don't like you, and you're fired because the world is just a big passive aggressive place. So most likely, I was let go because you know somebody didn't like what I was doing or something I said. But they never said that to me, so I'll never know for sure. The, another interesting thing in these studies is they found no difference in the personalities of um, how they scored on personality tests between amateur and professional comedians. These people are kind of born comedians. There's a reason there's something that draws the same personality types into comedy, which is kind of interesting. The thing about comics and jobs is we're very good at working in positions where we can be our own boss. I've known many... Uh, comics who were who were good managers and yet like rebellious against the system you know at the same time like they'd be good managers but doing bad things on the sly you know like I had a manager who would give me free products from the store that I worked in he was a good manager he was good at handling disputes but not I don't know how he kind of was everybody's buddy he was that kind of manager so maybe he wasn't a good manager he tried to play all sides. Like, yeah, she's a fucking douchebag, right? But we're okay. And then coming over, yeah, well, he's a fucking douchebag, but we're okay. You know, I'm on your side. Like, he'd play that card. So I guess not good manager. In a way, but like, but like one of those douches that you can't help but like. Yeah. The only thing that I disagreed with that doesn't really have much to do with jobs is that the findings of Dr. Gil Greengross was he found that comics who use positive comedy, work more than negative comedy, positive comedy, uh, making jokes that bring people together, you know, they call it affiliative or self-enhancing jokes versus aggressive and self-defeating jokes or, or, but that's bullshit because 
there's so many comics who, like Jim Norton, is very aggressive and very self-deprecating. A lot of self-deprecation. You know, in fact, almost every, maybe Seinfeld doesn't do anything really self-deprecating. And it's, you know, he's very, he's like very old school, you know, set up, set up, punch tag, set up, set up, punch tag kind of guy, you know. Ellen DeGeneres, not a lot of, she doesn't do anything aggressive or self-deprecating. Maybe a little bit. She like picks on herself a little bit. Yeah. You know, but nothing really, nothing like I'm, I'm a big fat slob loser kind of stuff or anything yeah. like that, you know. These things tie into, for me, not, like I said, not being, not, not so much being dismissed from jobs, but being tolerant in the workplace. The one, one type of person that it's very hard to be tolerant of, the automaton, people that seem like they're very surfacey. They don't really have any depth, and they're just going. They're on automatic all the time. It's hard to deal with people like that. And sometimes, how I do deal with it is I try because everybody's got to have some kind of depth to them. And if you talk to somebody enough, usually you'll find something about them that they think more deeply about or feel more deeply about. I every just about everybody pursues some kind of depth. Not everybody achieves it. I think as human beings we're, we're philosophical creatures wondering about our existence and and everybody has that on some level i think i would like to think yeah i, I hope so i have a hard time dealing with that i might get a little aggressive and and short with people who just insist on being very shallow and and robotic about their lives another thing um dealing in the workplace being able to carry on with a job is um being able to be lighthearted. Like, I don't want to joke around all the time, but it's very difficult for me to uh, be around people where I say something, just a lighthearted joke, and there's absolutely no, not even like an energetic response, yeah. just like a shutdown. Like, yeah. then I feel like everybody's like, well, this girl's a friggin' weirdo. <laughs> what the hell is she talking? I hate when that happens. It, yeah. <laughs> like, okay, well, that's where that line is drawn. Another thing I have a problem with, I call every every boss I've ever had, I call him boss man boss or man. boss lady because I don't remember their name. <laughs> hey, boss man. And I do the guns. <laughs> hey. I also have a, oh, an odd sense of morality. <laughs> Which is weird for me because there's a lot of things that, um, as far as the norms of society go, I do not share their level of morality. But um, I worked for a company that makes uh, like automatic wheelchairs. And I worked in scheduling and a scheduler you know, schedules what unit gets made at what time and shipped out to who. You know, and you have to prioritize. And a lot of times I had to not only deal with dealers and the internal sales and end users. End users consisted of a lot of paraplegics and a lot of spouses of people who were in wheelchairs and a lot of elderly women crying because their husband, he's going to die soon and he needs his wheelchair and I would like him to be able to have a life before he's gone and he can't do it anymore, and a lot of that. And because the company's goal of course is to make money but what they're profiting off of is people who are disabled i just i had a really hard time with that yeah. i couldn't i i had a hard time favoring dealers over end users who were buying like right from the company yeah. you know or dealers would give end users the company's number which i 
didn't understand. Like, well, you ask them, you know. Yeah. That was then I had to leave. I couldn't I couldn't do that job anymore because it was I'm a big hearted person. Got morals. I got morals <laughs> in that regard. Anyway, I have morals, but I have nothing against capitalism. I'm all for that. Just you know, in this case, I couldn't be a party to it. You know, go for it. Make all the money you want to off of uh, disabled people. Good for you that you found a niche. Yeah. But they were like evil overlords. In this case, this particular brand of evil overlord, I just couldn't back them up. You know, yeah. there's other kinds of evil overlords I'd be totally okay with. <laughs> Or it's like in the Omen movies we were watching yesterday where uh, Thorn Industries is actually Monsanto, apparently. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I could get behind Satan if he was Monsanto. I don't think so. And plus, he's supposed to be, you know, if, if Satan was on Earth, why would he do things to hurt the Earth then? Wouldn't he preserve it? Like, it's true. Yeah. So I don't know. I want to keep it for a while. Yeah. Then. Yeah. So I don't think that would happen. I don't think that... I don't think Damien Thorne would do that. No. I don't. <laughs> that's just, I'm, I'm attaching this weird morality to uh, a, to a uh, a Satan character now. <laughs> I, don't, I think he would preserve Earth. He would be now. He's like this nature boy. He is based on like Pan and you know nature creatures that live in the forest and dance around and stuff and play music. So that makes sense. I don't think that Thorne Industries would. Uh, Make chemicals and, and make a bunch of products out of soy. Yeah. Soy wine. I mean, come on. What Satan What Satan would make soy wine? Yeah, he'd be drinking the top of the line. Well, maybe he wasn't drinking it, maybe. Ah, uh, that's true. Yeah, maybe he was just feeding it to everybody else. That was the epitome of evil, according to that movie, is soy wine. Yeah. Like, oh, you know he's a bad guy now. <laughs> yeah. Jesus, he makes good wine. But this motherfucker here, this Satan guy, he makes some bad, he makes soy wine. Yeah, patooey, patooey. <laughs> that is my take on, on, I don't know if I really got very far with this. Psychologically, why a lot of comics might find it hard to hold a day job. Um, I also know a lot of comics who, if they have a day job that kind of goes along with what they do, there's quite a few um, attorneys that go into comedy and there's a lot of parallels there because they have to talk to a group of people usually only 12 they, and they have to use all the same tools that a comic would use they have to be persuasive and they have to be charming and they have sometimes funny yeah comes in there too so it makes sense that an attorney would have a, a thing for being a comic as far as creative jobs go, like writers and actors and things like that, like there was a few differences between comics and writers and comics and actors. And one, one distinct one is actors don't have to write their own material for the most part. The comics write and then perform what they wrote. And writers aren't writing to perform. They're usually writing for somebody else or they're writing a book or the, you know. Also, uh, actors and writers tend to score higher in the agreeableness <laughs> area. And, and it makes sense for actors because they're, actors are also, um, according to this study, have more of a, and they want to be famous, but comics don't tend to want to be famous. They just want to go on stages and be funny and then just be left alone. Because it's a weird, there's a lot of weird things that work against each other 
when you're a comic. And one of them is like that, I want you to love me. Leave me alone. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> only love me when I'm up here talking to you. And then I'm going to go to the bar and have a drink. Don't talk to me at the bar <laughs> unless you're buying me a drink. <laughs> And a lot of times after a show, you kind of extend that stage persona to the hanging out with the crowd afterwards. But uh, most of us are not really happy people in, in everyday life. A lot of very, they were just very sardonic and cynical people. And I think that that adds to how we view the world and how we interpret it and, and feed it back to people, you know? Yeah. Like, no, you think that this is this wonderful thing and I'm going to show you this. I'm going to turn this around on you and, and show you exactly what it, what this really is. So like I always do with the commercials. What was the one? Um, oh, the auto insurance commercial yeah. where they're like, if you can pay for um, accident forgiveness, yeah. then we won't increase your rate with your first accident. But the thing about that is you are already paying more money. So, of course, they don't have to increase your rate because they've already been paid. You've been paying for that first accident all this time. Accident forgiveness? No. You, it's the accident that you didn't have yet that you're paying for already. Really, you save money by going with a company that will increase your rate after your first accident, especially if you're a safe driver. Because if you never have that accident, you never pay more money. Yeah. That is the way a comic looks at things. <laughs> so, I don't know. Do you think that I answered any questions about comics and working? I think yeah, I think yeah, I did all right. Yeah. Done most of it. Yeah. I don't know if this is what Adam had in mind. But if it's not, then I get to do another segment if I feel like it. You know, it's not he's not the boss of me. Not my boss. Fuck Adam. Tell me what to do. <laughs> Stupid Adam Campbell. Tell me what to do. I was just ex illustrating my, you know, oppositional defiance. Yeah. All right, this has been another episode or segment of uh, Something Different with Heather Height on Nine Cents. Look me up, Heather Height, everywhere. Just Google Heather Height. Have a good week. Hail Satan. Now, come on, boys. Where's your spirit? I don't hear no singing. When you were slaves, you sang like birds. Come on, how about a good old nigger work song? I get no kick from champagne, mere alcohol doesn't thrill me at all, so tell me why should it be true? That I get a belt out of you Some get a kick from cocaine Hold it, hold it, what the hell is that shit? I meant a song, a real song Something like Swing Low Sweet chariot. Swing low, chariot. Don't know that one, huh? Well, how about the Camp Town Ladies? The Camp Town Ladies. The Camp Town Ladies. Oh, you know. The 
Camptown lady sing this song. Doo-dah, doo-dah, Camptown racetrack five miles long. All the doo-dah day. wide world of sports is going on here. I had you people try to get a little track lead, not to jump around like a bunch of Kansas City faggots. Sorry, Mr. Taylor. I guess we kind of got caught up. Listen, dummy, the surveyors say they may run into some quicksand up ahead. Better check it out. Okay, I'll send down a team of horses to check out the ground. Horses? Why, we can't afford to lose no horses, you dummy. Send over a couple of niggers. Okay, Mr. Taggart. You and you. Sir, sir, he uh, specifically requested two niggers. Um, well, to tell a family secret, my grandmother was a Dutch. <laughs> Get on that hand car and take it down at the end of that line. Just trying to help you out. Get! I knew your grandma was Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Camp Town ladies sing this song. Do da, do da. Camp Town racetrack five miles long. Oh, do da day. Going to run all night. Going to run all day. I'll wager my money on the bobtail nag. Somebody bet on the bay. I am not a liberal nor a conservative. I am not a Democrat nor a Republican. I am not a socialist nor a capitalist. I am not an authoritarian and I'm definitely not fighting for your cause. I belong to no party, I support no politicians, I am loyal to no state, and your cause celebra means nothing to me. I am Darren Deicide, Agent Provocateur. Whoa, that last episode was weird. Anyway, it's time for another episode of Agent Provocateur, or as some say, AP. And sometimes I'm a bit like an AP for thought criminals, especially for those who go to my newswire at facebook.com slash agentprovocateur on 9 cents, number 9. It's time to go back to an old-fashioned rant. This next thing I've entitled, Left Wings and Right Wings are for Chickens, so strap in for a small tirade. If you noticed... I don't really talk about Satanism on this segment. Today I'm going to break that standard. There are a couple of reasons I don't often talk directly about Satanism. First of all, a lot of people are already doing that on this show. I'm not a big fan of redundancy. Let me repeat that in case you missed it. I'm not a big fan of redundancy. That joke was for those of you that enjoy meta-humor. I also don't talk about Satanism because my specialization and point for this show is politics, somewhere in between poo humor, and the study of politics is essentially the opposite of ghettoization. Is that a word? I don't know. But besides the idea of possibly being a Satanist, constantly addressing a Satanic audience with Satanic material, what I mean by ghettoization is that a worldview that follows the careful, studied suggestions of Satanic principles doesn't benefit from demagoguery or various other means by which people are culled into narrow forms of thought or oversimplifications. Such dichotomous thinking is for the herd, or, in this case, the birds. And what a coop it is. 
Look at any society in mass, really. Political rhetoric is frequently divided into dualist thinking. Terrorists versus states, dissidents versus reactionaries, apostates versus Muslims, Muslims versus Jews, pro-lifers versus pro-choicers, blacks versus cops, whites versus blacks, Mexicans versus whites, whites versus reds, red states versus blue states, gays versus straights, men versus women, Democrats versus Republicans, good guys versus bad guys, and the Miami Dolphins versus the Texas Rangers. But we're getting closer and closer to the biggest dog and pony show of all, election year, which highlights the silliest of all American groupings, the left wing versus the right wing. The age-old dualism that has moved the civic electorate. You know, the civic electorate, the good patrons of American politics that have kept every other small-minded false dichotomy moving underneath their respective umbrellas. As you can see, I don't take this left and right wing business seriously. Why can't I be pro-Second Amendment and pro-abortion? Who made these rules? Notice I said pro-abortion, not pro-choice. That might have to be a future episode. Let's talk more about this right wing and left wing malarkey. The history of the terms left and right to define political ideologies goes back to the 18th century French Revolution and the organization of their General Assembly, which was divided between the right side of loyalists to the king and to the left, those who supported the revolution. We have yet to shake this cultural yardstick as a terminology in politics. Over time, political philosophers and scientists began to challenge this mode of taxonomy. Most have suggested the spectrum obsolete, seeing the realm of possible points of view to be much broader and complex than mere right or left. Some have suggested an axiomatic way of looking at political philosophies, with the x-axis being authoritarian to libertarian, while the y-axis reflects a spectrum of socialism to capitalism. That certainly leads to a bit of flexibility. I can get behind that. But even then, why stop at that? Some political philosophers have suggested a circular idea of the left-right spectrum. In this case, the left and right meet each other, and actually you can see this sort of melding often apparent in austere ideologies which frequently patchwork various extreme principles into a unique tapestry of rebellion and authoritarianism. It leads to those wonderfully colorful organizations like the Nation of Islam or the People's Temple, and we all know what happy endings they give us. Nonetheless, these philosophies affirm the circular theory as they morph into indescribable ideologies in right or left terms. Labels are often shorthands, and that makes sense. Hell, Satanism is one. But in nation states where politicians and their parties seek some mandate from the public, they come like ready-made mental boxes wrapped in a blue or red bow and as user-friendly as storage space bags except what's being compressed and vacuum-sealed isn't that dusty old suit collection. It's your brain. And every time an American willingly throws that space bag under the bed, more possibilities go with it. Look at the positions of dominant left and right-wing parties. Sure, there are differences, and sometimes they're worth looking at. The American right-wing generally is more restrictive of abortion. The American left is generally less. The American right wing is more hostile to gay marriage. The American left is less. These are just a couple of examples, and I'm sure you're rather familiar with them. How can you not be? It's shoved in your face constantly, as if it's the most critical issue facing the country. Mind you, 
the state of the Kardashian family is as well. Food for thought. I'm not saying that these things aren't important, but I don't know. Maybe there are some other things that are perhaps more pressing issues than a sex change surgery. And maybe they're so important to the vested interests of our status quo that there is complete consensus on those issues. Dualism functions well because it gives people the illusion of choice by appealing to their stupidity and the general human tendency to see everything in sides. Why think through the complexity of reality when you can just boil things down to the equivalent of right and wrong? It happens to work very well, and no example is better than in the utter irrationality of the religious zealot who sees everything according to this vast oversimplification. Well, welcome to the religion of America, left-wing and right-wing. The electorate attends service in the convenience of their living rooms by paying penance via their god, television, to the various sanctioned papal pundits who convey official concerns and points of view. In this world, true heathenism comes from those who are willing to ask questions about the crucial policies that have much broader implications than a marriage license, and yet they are the issues that right and left completely agree on without being challenged one iota. They're there. Faith-based initiatives, tax exemptions for religious charities, continued unilateral intervention in the Middle East, support for extremist theocracies in rogue states, the expansion of transnational investor rights over protectionism, bailouts for dysfunctional institutions, subsidies for special interests in government, and the general locking out of alternative points of view from the election process and media, this is true blasphemy. I do hereby salute you, blasphemers. People willing to engage in this sort of independent inquiry soon find that, in fact, the spectrum of American right and left is incredibly narrow. And much like the Satanist who becomes his own savior, they may find their political values start to break the pre-approved molds, and instead are a tapestry of integrated positions transcending easy categories. So, are you wearing those plastic 3D glasses with the cheap red and blue overlays on them? Is this how you view the world? Are you a loyalist or a revolutionary? Well, who told you that you had to be one or the other? The upcoming election is starting to ramp up, and the usual softball issues are being lobbed at the candidates, conforming once again to the left-right dichotomy. The ubiquitous tentacles of media reach for you from every direction, from the newsstands and their headlines to the annoying civic-minded assholes out there on the streets with their clipboards trying to convince you that it's your duty to participate in the bread and circuses while parroting their concerns. Be prepared for inundation. Try something with me for a moment, if you will. Let's take a moment to visualize the sigil of Baphomet. Note at the top, the two horns pointing again towards the sky, indicating an idealistic dualism, one clearly on the left, the other clearly on the right. More than any other time in the ebb and flow of American political discourse is it a good time to consider that third side striking down towards the earth and Hades below. 
Left wings and right wings are for chickens, afraid to do any homework, think critically, or consider possibilities that haven't been sanctioned by someone else. And the big American coop will continue to be filled with these fowl who will remain in their respective cages until their day of slaughter. One last question that may have crossed your mind. So, if the left wing and the right wing are for chickens, what's a third side for? <laughs> well, that's clear, my friend. The third side is for the best part. The breasts. I am Darren Diaside. Thank you for tuning into Agent Provocateur. why genies are trapped in bottles? Because they're a bunch of goddamn drunks! And like all drunks, they'll talk to anyone who will listen until somebody puts a cork back in the bottle. So, want a little drunken genie nonsense? Then grab a bottle of whiskey and rub one out. Or tune into Nine Cents the first week of every month and catch my segment, I Dream of Jesse. Episode 29, On Behavior Redirection, Part 3. The final one, I promise, <laughs> I am a den or den. In Colorado v. Masters in 2001, the defendant, who had no history of violence, was accused of the sexual mutilation and murder of a woman. The prosecutor used research data that indicated a connection between porn consumption and acting out what one watched. The reason he used this avenue of argument is because the defendant watched pornography similar to what was performed on the victim. The defense attorney called an expert witness, John C. Uli of the University of British Columbia, who warned that this type of pornography is quite common among non-offenders also. This led Uli to begin an experiment to see if one actually acts out their view of paraphilias. 
His findings were that although there is a correlation, it is a very small subset of individuals. He states, the vast majority of participants were, uh, reported at least one deviant sexual fantasy, though rates varied widely across categories. Within categories, substantial correlations between fantasy and behavior tendencies, behavior rates were much lower, consistent with the notion that only a subset of individuals act on their deviant sexual fantasies. The idea that one's sexual fantasies lead to the uh, lead to the action is a basic radical feminist idea, and though the research agrees, it only agrees in a small way. People may have violent sexual fantasies, but that does not mean they will act them out. And if they do, it doesn't immediately mean it will be on individuals who don't consent to it. Cue the paraphilia of sadomasochism. This is a widely practiced and represented sexual community. It is also known as SNM, bondage discipline sadomasochism, or BDSM, and includes flogging, rape, humiliation, urine play, enemas, infantilism, and many other acts which most would find offensive. In the DSM-5, it is only treated as a disorder if the individual reports psychosocial difficulties or distress over the proclivity. In Kenneth, Sanaba, Pekka Santilla, Lawrence Allison, and Nilas Nordling's research article, Demographics, Sexual Behavior, Family Background, and Abuse Experiences of Practitioners of Sadomasochistic Sex, a review of recent research. Side note, scientists really have to come up with like smaller article names. <laughs> they call need to re-examine sadomasochistic sexual practices as a social phenomenon based on a personal uh, predilection rather than a psychological disorder derived from childhood sexual abuse or lack of proper psychological adjustment. In their work, they noticed that in research on sadomasochism, it con concentrates solely on sexual offenders and not those who practice it legally, meaning with consenting partners. Stating also that previous studies have not taken account of the potential preferences that may exist among individuals who engage in one set of S&M uh, sex behaviors over another. Also citing research by Spangler in 1977, Weinberg in 1987, and Team Moser-Levitt in 1987 as showing massive evidence of SNM sex practitioners as being generally well-adjusted. The research reviewed by Sanab's team also examined family histories of the participants, noting that the type of attachment the uh, participants had with their parents, based on attachment theory, barely predicts a sexual behavior. Also, in examining the participants, all who uh, practice non-criminal SNM, the great majority of them are well-adjusted, have high income, and are very well-educated individuals. This research does beg another question. If one tend to, uh, tends to engage in violent sex without committing an illegal act or hurting anyone that doesn't want to be hurt, why can't rapists engage in the same acts as those of the sadomasochistic community? So far, the research on violent porn creating misogyny is quite small in support and is filled with holes where methodology is concerned. The research on violent pornography creating violent sex, while isn't completely conclusive, does lend support to that idea. Though there is a community of people who happily engage in fulfilling sexual experience by committing what rapists and sexual offenders are in prison for, the only difference between these two groups, rapists and SNM uh, practitioners, is rapists commit these acts against someone's will, and SNM practitioners have very, very willing participants. Since sadomasochists do not need therapy, for there isn't a personal issue in their sexual life, we can forgo that research avenue. But how does the majority of the psychological community treat sexual offenders, and what is the success rate of curbing that behavior? 
I find that in behavioral psychology and therapy that the basic idea of treatment is to delete the behavior by ferreting out its root. The issue with that premise of treatment is that all the research on the origins of rape and sexual violence is contradictory and inconclusive. Most treatments of sex offenders include psychopharmacology and therapy. The therapy meant to discover the root and to overcome it or how to deal with the fantasies from becoming action and the medicine to lower or control the sex drive in the sex offender, if not remove it entirely. In Lucy Johnson, Stephen Hudson, and Tony Ward's research article, Deviant Sexual Thoughts, Mental Control, and the Treatment of Sex Offenders, they examine how effective medicine has been on keeping sex offenders from repeating the offense and how teaching sex offenders mental control tactics may fare better. Stating that previous research has shown some sex, uh, sexual offenders to be able to inhibit their penile erections to sex-related stimuli in the laboratory. The Johnston team uses examples in everyday life of thought suppression to support the mere notion of this technique, being able to carry over into treating sexual offenders. The issue with this notion is that not only in the, is the success short-lived, success in one task leads to a greater use of those thoughts in a second. So, uh, successful suppression of sexual deviant thoughts in one situation leads to increased likelihood of sexual deviant behavior. The failure is inevitable. The Johnson team state in their research that unwanted thoughts still reoccur and lapses in suppression, especially frequent uh, for offense or addiction-related thoughts. This research further endorses the idea that violent sexual behavior may not be as easily categorized as a cause of the pornography one watches. What of medicinal treatment that is used with therapy? What is used mostly in treating men with paraphilias are antidepressants, antiandrogenins, and progestins, with very low success rates. Damn near ineffective. <laughs> Dr. Ariel Rosler and Dr. Uh, Widstam performed an experiment to find if preventing testosterone secretion by using medication will make a dent in the actions and fantasies of sexual offenders. This seems to be an avenue of punishment, a long-held belief that if a sexual behavior is deemed socially wrong or a mental illness, one must render the individual incapable of performing it. They found that all 30 of the participants had a prompt reduction in paraphilic activities during therapy. But the side effects, they were horrendous. The bone mineral density decreased after 6 to 12 months of therapy. They also had transient pain, persistent hot flashes, decreased growth of facial and body hair, uh, asthenia, and diffuse muscular tenderness. The treatment was fairly successful though. 21, I'm sorry, 21 reported progressive erectile failure, lack of sexual interest towards women, inability to achieve or maintain an erection or perform sexual intercourse. Comparing the Rosler and Whitsum experiment to other forms of therapy, the success, Jesus, <laughs> the success rate, if much better, but when compared to the failure rate of the therapy, it doesn't fare much better. The two cases of therapy and medical experimental therapy noted is meant to delete a behavior. But again, how does one delete what doesn't have a clear origin? Combine that question with the fact that many people practice all kinds of violent paraphilias in a healthy and safe way. And what would be a better therapy? If the difference between criminal men with paraphilias and men with paraphilias is the direction of the behavior, then why not redirect the men who criminalize their paraphilias? I say they criminalize their paraphilias because rape is only a crime when it is forced. Rape roleplay is strictly fantasy, and yet if one keeps to character, it plays out the same way it's reported to a police officer. Sometimes bruises and tearing too. <laughs> 
A classical psychodrama, according to a review of its effectiveness research by Peter Felix Kellerman, refers to a method of group psychotherapy in which clients are encouraged to continue and complete their actions through dramatization, role-playing, and dramatic self-presentation. Meaning the therapy is completely acted out from verbal engagement to realistic scenes, all under the direction of a qualified psychologist. The method of a psychodrama is summed up very well by Dr. Adam Blanter, a warming up process, the selection of a main protagonist, the exploration of a problem in action, and closing process that includes sharing by the group. This could be likened to Jigsaw from the Saw movies. He has his subjects break themselves from a machine that would kill them, and the machine is always symbolic of the vice that keeps them from cherishing their life. A more positive example of a psychodrama would be the aggressive men who go to the gym, box, play football, or wrestle in order to express their aggression. It is a fact that the human species has negative behaviors and tendencies, but why delete a behavior if one can direct it into a positive avenue? We wouldn't have warriors if we deleted violence from our genetic pool, or our dark artists, or athletes. The problem with psychodrama is that one needs to continually practice them whenever a strong need to fulfill a fantasy manifested mentally. One could simply utilize masturbation, as most of the population does, but for someone who needs the audio stimulation and the imagined lack of consent, as simply a mental picture, it just wouldn't do. We couldn't, of course, watch all pedophiles and rapists make sure they fulfill their weekly obligation to perform in a psychodrama, nor would it be feasible to force someone to engage in a therapeutic ritual meant to give vent to a predilection that wasn't arising at the time. So if one wasn't in the mood to perform rape, and he wasn't obligated to perform one in a psychodrama, it would emotionally and sexually defeat the purpose of it. There have been leaps and bounds in robotics and androids for sexual purposes. This would enable anyone to act out anything on a very lifelike individual without fear of committing any possible illegal act, unless you stole the robot or you're doing it in public. <laughs> Though I think I would want to see someone rape a robot in public. But <laughs> one might think of the Bruce Willis movie Surrogates without the human being connected to its robot. If these andro uh, androids were made available to the public, there would be an endless opportunity to express whatever paraphilia one wanted without the guilt or shame necessary for it to be considered a psychological disorder. There will, of course, always be humans that will venture to violate one's rights in regard to body and their mind. And these people will remain and must be held accountable. And they will have less of a defense because they have the option of politically correct slavery. So if these things existed and they still committed rape or raped a child, you you could punish them more severely. And you'd be more right in punishing them. Human behavior isn't necessarily so easy to follow that one can simply say, oh, that's the cause. Well, we'll just get rid of it. We live in a culture that is alien from our natural instincts and our instincts haven't bowed out. Evolutionary psychology states that rape may have had its purpose 200,000 years ago. And if that's correct, rapists are going to be around for a very long time. I can see why in the beginning of my research, every journal article I read began with, the data is contradictory. When delving into a topic that is emotionally charged, politically hot, scientifically elusive, one must be quite careful in discovering as much truth and experimental suggestions as one can. Radical feminists believe pornography causes misogyny and sexual violence, and some research does support their conclusions. Yet other experiments showed that it isn't necessarily eroticism in cinema that causes these thoughts and behaviors but the violent aspect of it. 
Yet further, there are cultures that practice erotic violence in a healthy, safe way and show no signs of psychological distress or disorder. The members of these cultures practice what is reported to the police officers in various parts of the country by rape or sexual assault victims. So what's the difference? Consent. The whole idea of rape and sex violence is based on consent. That is what the radical feminists seem to forget, that just because a man likes a position has, and has seen in a favored pornographic film and proceeds to ask you to indulge in it, he isn't a misogynist. From the arguments of radical feminists, they seem to be angrier that women like some of these kinks and fetishes rather than it is dangerous to them. They remind me of their supposed enemy, the fundamentalists. If the whole idea of consent is what separates someone from uh, someone who practices sadomasochism or bondage discipline sadomasochism from a rapist, then why not just provide the rapist with a fantasy? I mentioned before that the sex android is being perfected in Japan, and there is also the booming industry of virtual reality, two avenues to let the rapist fulfill any paraphilia in a way that wouldn't harm anyone else. These ideas may sound unsavory, but they would be ethical and based on psychodramatic research. Very, very effective more effective and humane than castrating a sex offender through chemical torture or the good old-fashioned way with a knife. It's more humane than pumping the sex offender with drugs meant to kill his libido and ends up taking his body with it. But how can one stop a behavior that may, that may have been evolutionary, evolutionary uh, necessary, but is no longer useful and is now dangerous? My answer is just to redirect it. If the current theory of nature and nurture is correct, that we must find ways to nurture our nature in new ways. As always, my fellow eroticists, keep your skirts up, your pants down, and no matter who bends over, exercise your demons. Oh, yeah, man. That is such a difficult... Oh, it, it, it's hard to get my head around because it it's, it's so antithetical to the Victorian way that our society, you know, acts when it comes to uh, the Victorian morals, I should say, our society uses uh, when it acts in, in sexual uh, situations. That, do you think that um, do you think that we would ever be able to get beyond our culturally? We'd be able to get on beyond our um, morals to set up situations where the rapist could be in that psychodrama still feel like he is in control, thus being able to act out that fantasy without having to assault someone who is not willing. I think when the culture changes, um, I think when these sex androids become uh, the norm, when they become cheap enough for the average man, yeah, I think it will change. Because um, rape, rape role play in, in private anyway, if you sit down in private with people and talk, they get kind of tantalized. Um, titillated and excited about it or just curious and very few in my experience get disturbed some people still do and understandable you just said you like to rape people yeah. you, <laughs> that's exactly what you just told someone i love to rape people <laughs> but i think what's more frightening is people here i want to be raped <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah uh so i'm i'm not quite sure but i think so I, I think when something comes out in the open and becomes normal, um, mm -hmm. but I don't think the idea of wanting to violate someone else uh, will become in public acceptable. But I think in private it is acceptable because people joke about it all the time. I made that girl swallow my load. Yeah. So. Well, it's weird because in our culture, you know, sort of Western American culture, it's 
beyond the realm of socially accepted thinking. But you go over to Afghanistan, to Iraq, and it's a real contentious issue with the Islamists there who think it's perfectly natural and normal to take a young child as a slave and use them as a, a rape doll where the American soldiers who have to interact with these people and witness it can't do anything about it because they're supposed to be on our side. So behaviors like that are real in cultures around the world and normal. And when our, our interactions just, you know, butt right into it, it's like you can't you can't wrap your head around it. You know, we can't understand it. And I don't I don't say I want to understand it, but point being, it exists and we're at the same exact place in, you know, the world and development of our minds as 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 human creatures, yet that culture says it's okay and our culture says it isn't. Right. Uh, for them rape is defined differently and it's usually about your um, status. You know, are you single or are you married and who are you related to? Um, but, um, you know, the, 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 the culture, I, I hope it changes. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's weird because I could never imagine in, in <laughs> I could never look for far enough for our culture to be okay with pedophiles ordering a young child doll or robot. Like, I couldn't imagine the company that would manufacture that to offer it, you know? That seems so far beyond me. But, you know, as you were saying in, in your in your essay, there are norms that have been around since the beginning of human societies, and though we see them as abhorrent, they've been around and they will persist despite our uh, sensibilities, despite the culture that we've been raised in, no matter the culture we are raised in, they will always be there in some people. So if if we don't in some way cater, at least like with androids, for example, then we will continue to have these horrendous crimes perpetuated on other human beings. Right. I I usually shy away from saying this in public because I... It, like like I said, it, it's emotionally charged, so yeah. people get rightfully angry, but they don't listen to what I'm saying. But I, I don't give a shit anymore. I'll just say it now. <laughs> I think it is wrong for a justice system to claim um, cruel and unusual punishment is illegal and then castrate people for rape. Mm. It's It's not right to castrate somebody i personally i don't think it's right at all to castrate a pedophile or a rapist i don't think it's okay if you if your claim is no cruel and unusual punishment that is cruel and it is unusual um well not really i mean people castrate each other for centuries and all over the world so <laughs> maybe it's not unusual but it's cruel well, forced i would say forced castrate <laughs> right <laughs> but Besides that, the castration doesn't work. It, it does not work. So even when I'm sitting with other Satanists, they're like, no, just shoot them. I'm like, just shoot someone. Ne never mind that, you know, the crime should fit. They didn't murder anybody. You can't kill yeah, them. Lex Talionis. Right. It would be unjust to kill someone. Yeah, but he raped a child. He destroyed his soul. 
Okay, no, that's not the no. You can't pick and choose this shit, all right? <laughs> it's I would rather walk into my neighbor's house and see a robot, an android of a ten-year-old boy, in the corner, um, getting ready to bend over for daddy, than see this man on the news knowing he raped a real person. Mm-hmm. I, I sure it would gross me out. I'm like, ew, you like kids? What the fuck is wrong with you? You like kids, but he's not raping anybody. Mm-hmm. So. It's a really it's, good point. It's a difficult point, but I don't know anyone that would disagree, you know, given the two options. Like, well, the, there's a third one. You can just shoot him. But I think that's unfair. Yeah. <laughs> and besides the point, it, you never see in the news. And um, there's plenty of articles out there about it. Most most pedophiles come forward to psychologists and say, I have these feelings. I don't want to do this. Help me. Mm-hmm. Problem is, there's no treatment to help them. There isn't one. And nothing works. Yeah. So when people like Nambla say they're born that way, Nambla being uh, North American Man Boy Love Association, they claim they're like gay people that they're born this way, therefore it's okay. But that's a nat- that's a the appeal to nature. It's a it's a naturalistic fallacy. Just because something is natural does not mean it's good. HIV is natural. Um, volcanic eruptions are natural. Tsunamis are natural. Right. right. Um, surgery is unnatural. So are clothes. So are houses. So it's it's a bullshit argument. It's complete bullshit. Um, I don't even like when gay people say they're born that way because it's apologetics. But na- wow. if if a pedophile is born with that um, inclination, that doesn't mean it's okay. Now, when I say pedophile, this is very important. When I say pedophile in this episode, I specifically mean the definition in psychology, which is somebody who's attracted to somebody, to a child that is prepubescent. A pedophile in the law is anybody attracted to anyone under the age of consent, whatever that consent age is. So in some states, it's 17. Any, if you sleep with a 16-year-old, you're a pedophile. Yeah, if you insane. sleep with it's nuts. And I hate that. There's a different term in psychology for people attracted to young boys or girls. Like, and I mean young, meaning 15 to 20. There's, and that's, that isn't unnatural. Less than 100 years ago, we, we were, men were marrying 15-year-olds. And it was okay. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Biologically, it's still okay. Biologically, they're ready. But it's illegal. And it makes sense for it to be illegal. Their brain isn't ready to make those kind of decisions. Hmm. That and we're not in the fucking woods, and we're not living till thirty anymore. So, yeah, that was a big difference when we, you know, thirty-five was the the cap. Right. There's a huge fucking difference. So, yeah, I in the end, this behavior redirection for me, it's it's pretty much what every all my research in academia and in my professional life concentrates on is. How do you get people who want to, who have a strong desire to do something that will hurt someone and land them in prison and we don't know where it comes from and there's no treatment for it? How do we take that behavior and redirect it so it doesn't? Mm-hmm. And I think these sex androids are our best way to do it, where I hope a company would make five-year-old kids build little androids 
to have sex with these sick and demented and crazy people. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird. Uh, that it it's a it's such a challenging topic even to address in your own head, let alone with someone else in or in public or it's it's just such a a challenging subject that I'm I'm really really glad that you are uh, strong enough to not only do the research on but bring that research to us and openly discuss and uh, you know that's it takes it takes a lot to be able to do that and I really really do appreciate it. Where yeah, can the where can the good folks online find a little bit more about you and your essays etc. They can go to militanteroticism.com. They can go to the Nine Cents website. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> or you can uh, go on Facebook and, yeah, there's Militant Eroticism for the book, Militant Eroticism on Nine Cents podcast for this lovely show that tells mm. to get rapists robots. And. <laughs> <laughs> robots for rapists! <laughs> oh my god, I should run for office and have that be my slogan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> robots for rapists vote a dead no one really wants to openly support you lest they be seen as a rapist <laughs> oh my god but but on, on a, but a, a note on this though that I have to say it's amazing to me that people are afraid mm -hmm. to say that it is an issue that must be dealt with instead of just punishing people where where they just pop up in existence all the time yeah, it's it's really the third side, and I don't understand why so many people are afraid of saying that, just to deal with a problem in a kind of safe and gross way. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird, man. You know, our, our our culture is so confused with itself, and and it at like abject odds with itself in so many ways, and this is very much one of them. Just sexuality in general is one of we, them. We have to accept that there are disgusting, despicable, and gross things that are a part of our species, and we just have to deal with it. Mm. And that's really all these parts, part one, two, and three, it's all been leading up to that statement. There are sick, demented, and gross people, and we don't know why they are that way, but we have to deal with them. And that's um, it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fantastic end to a really fantastic series. Uh, thank you, Aden, for bringing it to us. Thank you. All right, well, until we can chat again, my friend, hail Satan. Hail Satan. Join um, by a very good friend of mine. Uh, so many times, you, you when you see Satanism in action and you think about Satanism in action, you think about people um, going out there and, and doing 
what it is that they are best at um, and striving to make a better lives for themselves. And this uh, this individual does this every day in ways that um, ways that you and many of you listening can't even fathom. Um, being joined today by Warlock, Robert Luthold. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. How are you doing? I was going to do the whole walking thing as an intro, but shit, after that ego stroke, I'm just going to do it straight. That's what this, fucking, that's what this show has become. It. I'm so not interested in putting out my opinion on anything anymore. I've done that. This is such... The, Satanism today it is quite literally... It's What it's going to be now is me being a cheerleader for other people in the organization because everyone is doing so much cool shit and you are you are absolutely no exception. Um, my wife is smiling at me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, since the wife is in the room, hey, Heather, how are you doing? Very good. How are you doing, handsome? Uh, pretty good. <laughs> uh, so let's get started. Um, I suppose let's start with um, with the standard question. How did you yourself discover Satanism? Um, well, many, many years ago when the universe was young and uh, the Internet was also young, I was back in college and uh, I was 17 years old, didn't know shit about the world, and I started getting into heavy metal and in particular King Diamond. And what it was, was I was reading an interview about him, but, you know, from, I guess, a radio show transcript, and he said, well, I follow what's known as Satanism. And that that gave me pause, because at that point, I'd heard, like, the Christian view of what Satanism was, you know, sacrificing babies and shit like that, and, you know, what you saw in your basic Hammer Horror movie. And I got the Satanic Bible, and I read it, and it clicked. The problem is that I live in the Bible Belt, and at that point, uh, my mom happened to see the book, and she flipped shit. <laughs> she, she gave me three weeks to either get rid of the book or get out the house. So, you know, what I had to do was... I had to get rid of the book because Satanism is about survival, as we all know. And um, I did what I had to do. And over the years, I bought uh, multiple copies of the book and I shared it with friends. And of course, never gotten them back. But it's no big deal because it's <laughs> like it's like six bucks a book. Yeah, if exactly. You can't afford six bucks. I mean, there's something wrong. Yeah. I think everyone, I think everyone I know that I've spoken to in the church has at least three copies of the Satanic Bible. They've got the co- they've got their scratch copy that they mark up and make notes in. They've got the copy they lend out to friends, and now with uh, Reverend Merciless putting out that gorgeous hardcover, we've all got copies of that too. Um, oh yeah. So there's at least three copies of the book floating around my apartment. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, so now, years later, have you? Have you reconciled this issue with your family, or are they still in the dark? Well, they know. I, You know, I, I've never really hidden anything from them, but I have told my parents, you know, my mother in particular, I've said, what I do regarding Satanism and the organization will always remain separate 
from the family because they're uh, they're diehard Catholics. But the irony of the whole situation is my mom would always raise me, you know, don't take shit from anyone. Put yourself first. You're the most important. And I don't have the heart to tell her, well, you know, mom, you raised a <laughs> Satanist from a very young age. That's it. It's very interesting how our parents instill us with satanic values and then profess to loathe those same values when we express them ourselves. It's oh, really yeah. quite fascinating. It, it's funny because, um, you know, still, in the information age, people still have misconceptions about what we do. And then, you know, with those jerk-offs that have the statue, it doesn't help. No, certainly not. Fucking douchebags. Um, so now... Again, growing up in the Bible Belt, outside of your family, have you ever met with any sort of uh, resistance? Uh, because I don't. Are, well, let me start with this: Are you are you public when you out and about when you're your day to day? Do you fly the colors? Do you kind of go incognito? Do well, you let the situation dictate? Yeah, I do uh, cripple incognito most of the time. You know, my friends, my genuine friends around here that know. No, and they don't give a shit. Mm -hmm. So generally and, the community is relatively accepting, at least the community around you that you surround yeah. yourself with. And, you know, even on Facebook, I have very open Christians on my Facebook, and they're like, well, this is Rob, this is who he is. He's respected us, so we'll respect him. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, um, now we said at the beginning of the show um, about you know, Satanists you know, excelling and, and doing amazing things every day. Um, one, one of the most amazing things that you've been doing in the last several weeks and months is something that a lot of us take for granted, and that's simply walking. Um, you suffer from cerebral palsy. Uh, yeah, I mean, it has benefits too, you know, free parking, uh, <laughs> shit like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, now I, it's very apparent to you know the choir of people who will probably listen to this uh, how you're utilizing Satanism within the, the confines of your physical therapy and, and recovering you know even just the most basic mobility but yeah. perhaps to the layman maybe uh, explain how you utilize the principles of Satanism um, in your day to day life with regards to uh, you know, recovering your ability to walk and move Sure, not a problem. Um, well, the thing is, with physical therapy, they're always worried that I'm going to push too far and hurt myself. And I've always used lesser magic to kind of manipulate and weasel and push a little bit more. It's like, come on, I know I got this. Trust me, I got this. And they don't have the heart to tell me no. <laughs> So your doctors are, you know, yeah, let them try it. See what happens. Yeah. And then you surprise and them. that's when I just excel and blow their fucking minds. Have you, you, so you've never had a doctor say, no, you can't do this? Um, I've had people concerned, like, around me that I might, like, break my ankle or hurt my arms, but a doctor's never flat out told me no. 
that's that's amazing. Um, now, do you do you notice now? You know, with, without having much knowledge of, of what your therapy details, do you are are you by yourself in these therapy sessions, or are there other patients around you? Um, there's a couple of other patients in the room, but usually the therapists work with me one on one. Um, and you know, we're, we're working on getting flexibility back as well as mobility. And we're also working on getting a lot of my upper body strength back. And mm -hmm. I'll explain that last one, but I have to backtrack about a year or so. Um, I, I think you remember this because last year, um, about August 29th, I was with my parents in Gulfport for their anniversary, and I ended up in the emergency room with a hiatal hernia, gallstones, whole nine yards, and I had to have surgery to repair everything, get my gallbladder removed which in itself was a pain in the ass because I had to learn what I could eat again mm -hmm. after being able to eat whatever the hell I wanted for so long. Uh, but You mean you still don't eat pizzas like I do? <laughs> you sound way too much like Evan with that, man. <laughs> <It's> because, okay, <laughs> for, for those of you who know, Robert has been a longtime fan of, of other radio projects that I've done, including Hate Speech yeah. Radio, which featured comedian Evan Weiss, um, who recently himself had his gallbladder out and yet still refuses to not eat pizza. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I love him, I'm but he's going to die soon. I'm a chronicle of David's fuck-ups. You really are. You, you know my backstory as far as my body of work better than I do. I literally have asked you, when did I do this? And you've known the answer. <laughs> well, um, yeah, you know, the thing was, I, I went from doing as much as I could for myself to uh, the three weeks of recovery after the surgery, I could do nothing for myself. And from an outside perspective, getting weighted on hand and foot, you know, being turned, being, you know, bathed, it would sound ideal, but I was miserable. I was, I was miserable because I wanted to do things for myself, but everyone was afraid I would rip a stitch or something. And there's only so many hot nurses in the hospital to give you a sponge bath before they got to roll the fat one out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's that, too. <laughs> um, and, you know, even when I was in the hospital, the night that everything went down, when I was on that gurney, uh, they had the IV drip and they had uh, morphine going in me to make sure the nausea was kept to a minimum so I could uh, take everything for the CAT scan. I never once thought, you know, maybe I should just relinquish this whole Satanism business and flip-flop. That never once crossed my mind. I was just like, I will get through this and I will come back stronger. And I did. And I came back a little bit crankier, too. <laughs> um, so I guess that gets back to my, my initial question where I was going with the, um, with the other patients. Do the doctors in the 
in your therapy sessions treat the other patients differently because they don't seem to have that or or let me ask you this question do those same patients have that same zest for life and the ability to succeed that you do they do and uh because my therapists know that i excel at being a pain in the ass they push me harder (laughs) nice that's all and now um With this most recent, uh, the most recent video you posted, you've uh, you've actually walked several feet. That yeah. uh, and that was something you hadn't done before. Uh, it has been at least, I want to say, about five years since I attempted walking, mm-hmm. and that was painful, but I did it, and I'm gonna do it again, and again. And again, until I can walk up the stairs to your apartment in Brooklyn. <laughs> Be able to do something that my mother can't. <laughs> Just walk up that flight of stairs. It is, it is quite the steep flight of stairs. And you will do it. I, of this, I have no yeah. doubt. You just owe me a beer when we're done. Oh, you, you got it, brother. Absolutely. Let's, uh, let's switch gears and talk about music. Because you are, as you said at the beginning of the, the show, an avid heavy metal fan. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm actually the host of Metal Invaders on Radio Free Satan. You know, a lot of people, um, I listen to a lot of black metal, a lot of death metal, and you know the stigma behind that. Right. You know, gangster raps, angry white cousin, pretty much. <laughs> I've actually never heard that analogy, although it does make sense. Um, I'm actually going to be seeing Mayhem again for like the fifth time in a couple of weeks. VIP, gotta love lesser magic. Nice. Although, can you even can you even say that it's Mayhem anymore? I mean, Euronymous is dead. Death is dead. Fucking uh, most of the is anyone in the original band still left? Uh yeah. Necro Butcher and Hellhammer are still doing it. And they're they're doing it in Uranimus's memory, so <laughs> Yeah, that's such a weird, weird story, man. I I kinda grew out of black metal like probably probably when I turned like thirty. I it just it stopped holding appeal for me. Um, yeah. I still go and it, people People say I, 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 because I will still occasionally go back and listen, put on a Cradle of Filth album, and, and people are like, "Yeah, Cradle of Filth, bunch of posers." Like, no, it's, it's nice symphonic music with screamy yeah. vocals. They're kind of doing it better than everybody else. Um, it's just it's it's more as far as black metal goes. It's more my cup of tea. It's less noisy. Yeah, you prefer the symphonic than a lot of the low end. Uh Sounds like it's recorded in a toilet type of stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. I saw it 10 years ago. Yeah, 11. 11 years ago now. Um, saw Demu Borger do a set on OzFest, and they really impressed me. Um, they were really tight and had a really solid symphonic sound as well. So I They're of, great. They ne- really are. Every now and again, I'll go back and I'll check out a Demu Borger album. Um, but yeah, so um, and so now you you have manifested your love of metal through the Metal Invaders show. Um, yeah. What um, <clears throat> was it? Just your love of the music that inspired you to do this? Well, actually, I had uh, 
people kind of hinting at me. Friends were like, well, you're a COS member now and you have this encyclopedic knowledge of metal. Why don't you do a show? And I'm like, nah, nah, I don't want to do it. And I, I thought about it and I said, well, why the hell not? And that's where it started. And how long has it been now? Uh, over a year now. And what are your plans for going forward? Um, my next show, when I get the recording done, is probably going to be... I'm going to be expanding the show to like an hour and a half instead of just the uh, hour format. Mm-hmm. And uh, for Halloween, I have planned to do an occult rock episode featuring the likes of uh, Coven... Um, person who I saw recently, you saw um, put the uh, picture with two of their members on their Facebook page yesterday. Um, you know, I like the occult metal scene as well because it's a, it's a pure 70s throwback sound-wise, and I really like that type of stuff. I really enjoyed that episode of the show, by the way, because that's, again, that's more these days as I approach 40. That's more and more becoming my cup of tea. Just the all, you know the all the Sabbath clone bands that you know pretty much sound have that seventies you know big Marshall amp Gibson guitar sound. Um, that's kind of what's doing it for me, and so I really really enjoyed that episode. So yeah, look look for that one. It'll be out for Halloween. Um, and if you haven't heard it yet, I definitely recommend the new the new uh, Ghost album. I've given Ghost a couple of chances. Um, musically, I think they're good. Um, his voice is really thin. He's got a very thin-sounding voice. There's not a lot of oomph to his vocals, and it kind of ruins it for me. Just you know, it's just my opinion. Um, I know that there are a lot of people out there that really dig Ghost, and I, I really dig the imagery that they create. I think they put on a great stage show. Um, but now. I found musically, and I want your opinion on this, they kind of sound like if uh, Merciful Fate and Blue Oyster Cult had an illegitimate child. That's a fair analogy, I think. I think that's a fair analogy. Although, I don't, I don't think vocally you can compare, um, compare him to King. I don't think you can. Um, no, I, I think, I'm definitely not saying that. I think um, even... Even with King's falsetto, there is his voice still has balls, and that's yeah. that's really, for lack of a better term, I think that's what the guy from Ghost's voice is missing. His voice doesn't have any balls. Um, but like I said, musically, I think they're they're great. The stage show is phenomenal. It's just you know, as someone who was a singer, you know, the vocals are very important to me. Um, yeah, and say so just his vocals don't do it for me. You know, again, just you know, one man's opinion. Yeah, that's totally fine. Satanism is all about individuality. I won't shun someone because they don't like what I like. It's like I said the other night. It's not enough for someone to like what I like or hate what I hate. They have to have something deeper Yeah. for me to connect with them. I'll shun somebody. Totally. Bill M and I have had the <laughs> Bill M and I have had the uh the Ozzy versus Dio Sabbath eras argument pretty much since we've known each other. <laughs> I love Bill. Bill's a friend. Bill's yeah. a good friend. Bill uh, is fucking awesome. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, the guy sent me peanut butter coffee. So. Oh yeah, you can't go wrong with peanut butter coffee. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> but it's funny. I think it was the day that I met Bill. We um, we were in Canada, and I don't think we were together an hour before that conversation started. <laughs> and, and it has continued for 14 years. Speaking of, you know, meeting other Satanists, year 50 blew my mind. Yes. I, I remember being on the outside looking in for 666, and I was like, damn, I wish I could be there. And there I was, Washington, D.C., year 50 with the rest of you guys. And I'm like, yeah, I made the right choice. You did, man. You are you are without a doubt one of us, and we are proud to uh, to count you amongst our ranks. And that's really humbling coming from you. Thank you. Absolutely, my brother. Um, I guess let's uh, let's wrap up with this question. Um, you've you know, you've got the show. You've got uh, you are making progress physically. You're 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 walking. Um, where, where is, where's Robert going? Where's, where's Robert in five years? Onward and upward and, uh, maybe up north permanently. I thought about moving up that way because come on, aside from the good food down here, there's not much for me here. I don't fit in. I'm not the good old boy that says, yeehaw, let me watch Fox News and football and... <laughs> Drive my truck. That's not me. Fuck that shit. Oh, do you know what we should touch on that I we we talked about before the show? Um, and this is a uh, another uh, sort of ties back into the fact that you you have been you know sort of my pseudo archivist. Um, is your avid love of stand up comedy? Oh yeah, Carlin, um, Stanhope, which I got into. I'm not sure if it was either you or Bill, one of you guys. I, I fucking love Stan Hope. He's the next Carlin, I think. Stan, yeah, Stan Hope. Yeah. In terms of, really in terms of, and, and you know, some people may give me flack for this because he's, um, he's a very avid and very public uh, drug abuser, um, but as, in terms of his material, uh, Delivering the closest thing that I've seen in stand-up to a satanic message, um, you know, from the from the stand-up comedy world, it, it's it really does at this point begin and end with Doug Stanhope. No one else is doing what he's doing. You could say yeah. Bill, you could say Bill Hicks, but Bill Hicks is you know no longer on well, this planet. He's dead. Yeah, <laughs> Bill Hicks is not doing much of anything at the moment. Um, but his fans have this nasty habit of busting Dennis Leary's balls every chance they get. <laughs> <laughs> I remember finally Dennis Leary had had enough and then went on the Opie and Anthony show and just said, oh, you didn't know I stole half of my material from Bill Hicks and Louis C.K. is another guy I stole from. Yeah, do you remember that? It just went off on people saying that he stole, steals jokes. Here's the thing about stealing jokes. It, too much of what is called parallel thought yeah. is blamed is is 
then you know, people who have parallel thoughts are then accused of stealing jokes. Parallel thought happens. You write a joke, you don't listen to everybody's, or maybe maybe you did hear it, and you just you forgot that you had heard it, and then it pops back in your head, and you write it down. And do you know what? Someone calls you out on it. Do a little homework. Be like, oh yeah. Do you know what? You're right. And, and then drop pop the up bit. To it. Yeah. And then, I um, I did a set when I was still actively doing comedy. Um, and I'd written, a, I'd written a bit and Charlie, um, one of the, one of the, from the, one of the last incarnations of hate speech, uh, yeah. he, he was at the show and he comes up to me after the show. He's like, damn, that, that bit you did sounds a lot like something Greg Giraldo used to do. And I'm like, Oh fuck, really? And so he, he gave me the name of the bit, the album it was on. I went and I listened to it. And while it wasn't exact, it was close enough to make me drop the bit. Because I'm like, oh, yeah, you know what? This does sound a lot like this. Let me ditch this and try again. And it just, it happens. That whole exchange from that episode of Louis uh, between Louis C.K. and Dane Cook is all about that. The whole thing that Dane stole Louis' jokes got blown out of proportion. Dane probably overheard something, didn't remember where he heard it, and then months later jotted it down and started using it. And people started, ah, you stole Louis C.K.'s joke. Even Louis admits, he's like, it's just, he got sucked up into his brain and it just came out. But you know, just yeah. own up to it and just be, oh, okay, yeah, that's, this happened. Um, as opposed to, you know, People like, say, Mencia, who have blatantly been caught. Well, no word for word stealing other people's jokes. Um, there, there is a distinct difference. Speaking of uh, joke thieves, I mean the the popular one to rag on right now, and I don't mean uh, Evan when I say this, but that guy, the fat Jew. Oh God! <laughs> Again, that's blatant. And that guy got a Comedy Central pilot out of stealing other people's jokes. And uh, didn't he get? Didn't he get that poll? Yeah, yeah. The internet got that taken care of because the. the and I'm not. And here's it's that double-edged sword because I hate that shit. I hate internet nanny people who. You did the I. Fucking want to strangle those people. One of the few times social justice warriors actually did something good. Exactly. They, you know, I, I hate to give credit to the social justice community, but they got one right on that one, and it, it pains me to say it. Um, but they did because that dude was flat out stealing stuff from other people, and he got a pilot out of it, and uh, that's just not yeah. cool. Um. um. But before we do wrap up, I did want to mention I do have something coming out around the same time that I'm planning on doing my next episode of Metal Invaders. Um, I will be in a horror anthology, ladies and gentlemen of horror, um, put out by Jennifer L. Miller. And it's also going to feature Warlock Aldous Strauss and Citizen Matt Stober. Awesome. And when uh, when can we expect that? Uh, it's scheduled to be released on Halloween. I sent you a link to the Facebook page, I think, last week. And mm -hmm. all the money raised um, from sales of the book will be going to the American Cancer Society. 
All right. That's awesome. And um, Metal Invaders, people can check that out every week. Um, I tend to do it like twice a month now. Okay. To, to give myself enough time to get some material. Mm-hmm. And I was actually thinking about putting Prong in a set just for you. Yeah. Love Prong. I love uh, Prong. We obviously are both big fans of the four dick from Brooklyn type of negative. Oh, of course. I miss those guys. Oh, man. There's a giant hole in the in the scene of, of metal music that is missing now that typo is not making music anymore. Um, I'm just I'm just had I'm a happy life of agony got back together. Please. I think I think really the only band that comes close to ty- what typo did without obviously the sardonic humor that the band had is um Sal Abstracado's a pale horse named death. Pale horse named death is great. I actually got to see them open for for uh, Life of Agony down at the Starland Ballroom last year, and they put on an amazing awesome. show. Um, awesome. Sal is great. A good dude too, if you've ever met him. Um, all right, let's uh, and let's end on that. Robert, I want to thank you for being on the show, um, and you continue to inspire all of us with uh, with your work, both uh, in physical therapy and on the radio. You're uh, you're awesome, brother. And uh, like I said, we are proud to count you amongst uh, the ranks of the truly alien elite. Thank you, David. All right. Talk to you soon, my friend. Talk to you soon. And uh, hail Satan. Hail Satan. And that's going to do it for Satanism today uh, here on the Nine Cents Podcast. As always, if uh, you have any questions, comments, or uh, you want to learn more about the Church of Satan, you can log on to the Church's website at www.churchofsatan.com, or you can pick up a copy of the Satanic Bible by Anton Zandor LeVay, available uh, from Avon Publishing in a fine $9 paperback, or better yet, get the hardcover version um, from Reverend Merciless's uh, company, the company name that I will edit into this broadcast Um Post, uh, post facto because the name is escaping me at the moment because um, <laughs> I suck I know the name <laughs> what, what is it <laughs> it's uh, Rabid Crow Rabid Crow Rabid Crow Designs oh, that's, again you're my brains I, I need you to remember all of the shit that I've done in 15 years because I can't do it <laughs> I'm the uh, crippled chronicle I guess you could say <laughs> All right, Robert, take care, my friend. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. And that's going to do it, people, for yet another show, and I hope you enjoyed it. We would love to, of course, hear from you. Good, bad, whatever. You got to comment on uh, which Zaftig's segments. Send them to her, send them to me, and I'll Mm -hmm. forward them on. Uh, Info at 9centspodcast.com. Let us know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or just general comments you might have. You can find us in social media, Satan at Facebook, Google+, Twitter, MySpace. You can... uh, Tune in to the episodes uh, online from iTunes to Last.fm, Stitcher, and YouTube. But however you find us, however you get us, leave, give us a rating or a comment. We really do appreciate it. And again, it pushes up, uh, pushes us in the eyes of those who really want to find us. Uh, there's only so much that we can do ourselves. We, it is incumbent upon you, the listener, if you want us to continue doing what we're doing to help share Uh, spread the word really share nine cents with uh, your friends and uh, those interested and uh, maybe your mom wants to hear about it too she's making cookies she can tune into witch zaptic um (laughs) thank you again once again uh 
I'm your host, Adam Campbell. I am apparently incapable of reading my script. So <laughs> uh, thanks for joining me. And I'm being joined today by... Witch Zaptic. The wonderful Witch Zaptic. And uh, until next week, we'll be here. Hail Satan. Hail Satan.